All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is Twist Gaming, where you get to play board games with us. Uh, we are doing our Great Game Hunters podcast, where we like to talk about the ins and outs of all of the Kingdom Death Monsters, as well as the strategies to beat them and what to do with their corpses when you're done. Uh, but first, some introductions. I'm Matt, and I'm joined here with Fen and Josh. Guys, say hello. Hello. Messed you up there for a second, didn't I, Josh? Uh so this evening, we're going to be continuing on with the theme from last session, uh, and we're going to talk about the hand. So we delved a little bit into the lore last week of the Kingsman and the hand combined, but we're going to get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the hand this evening. So first up, as per the usual, we're going to talk about the lore, the background of the monster. Uh, Fen, take it away. Okay, well, the Hand is one of the characters within the core game who gets probably the most information. It's spread around through the book in in various places. Uh, As you mentioned, we talked last week about the whole uh, structure in which the Hand uh, fits in. Uh, He's kind of a general portion, um, sitting above the Kingsman. Uh, He's certainly very powerful in his own kind, and he is classified as an entity. so the, uh, the the law when you get first face the hand says there once was an entity that knew everything but never spoke. For every secret that escaped, it became weaker and its enemies stronger. But that's not the only place that the hand is mentioned. Um, it's actually mentioned within the Screaming Antelope law, which we talked about um, back in the Screaming Antelope podcast. Now, just as a refresher, how is he mentioned in the Screaming Antelope section? Uh, he's mentioned as actually the creator of the Screaming Antelope. The text says, uh, there once was a fearsome monster that was trained by the hand to be a steed for the goblin. However, upon smelling its new master, the monster's mind shattered and it ran into the unknown, foaming at the mouth and biting the noses off the stone-faced floor. So, uh, yeah, whether that's like actually a little bit of fo- fun folklore within the setting or it's actually what happened, we don't know. It sounds a bit more whimsical than normal, but... It suggests a link there, and he certainly does have a link with one particular antelope. Is that the mad steed you're referring to? Yes, it is, yeah. Um, which is said to be uh, the hand trained it to be ridden by him alone, and the, the more that the, the mad steed carried the hand around from one terrible task to the next, its appetite grew and its horns took on twisted shapes. Um, so when you do meet the mad steed which is it's quite an interesting fight i will say uh you're essentially fighting something that is purported to be the the hand's mount or once was his mount i guess seeing as it's loose so (laughs) so fan you were talking a little bit before uh in our pre-stream about the hand and how intelligent he is and i know you referenced the actual sculpt of the mini itself uh having the the brain on top of his well not crown would it be crown or circlet it, uh well it's uh it's certainly a crown design at the top and i mean the top of the head is the crown so fine to call it the crown yeah ah i am back i figured out what happened um so yeah so uh the the steed i like that idea that he's just this giant mount and he's just he turned evil even evil ev- eviler is that the word i want because the hand just kind of rode him around and did nasty things na- nasty things with him corrupted him yeah it is uh it is interesting um it seems like the hand and i think there's a question whether there's one hand or multiple hands and i touched on this in the previous podcast uh so again i won't go into too much detail but there there seems like within the context of 
the plane of faces of people of the lantern in particular i think you encounter just the same hand repeatedly across whichever um campaign you have to be playing I, I think including people of the stars and people of the um sun it's the same hand in all three but you think there's multiple hands and you just counter one of them there's a suggestion of it within some of the other law and we won't really know until we find out i mean maybe the other ones have different names and effectively take the same function as the hand who knows That's sort of something probably be further down the line we find out about i don't think it's, there's going to be much information within the next wave of expansions because they seem to touch more on the inverted mountain and the abyssal woods than actually looking at the plane of faces in further detail do you think it might just be a title and there might be some other monsters that are the hand essentially there could well be yeah so um I mean, I, I could go into more detail here on the law, but I think I'd rather not go back over the very heavy law specific spoiler intensive stuff I did during the Kingsman uh, and repeat myself and have another episode where I have to say, go away for 15 minutes and do something else or mute it unless you want big things spoiled. So we'll move on into the AI unless you guys have anything to add. Well, let's go into the uh, story event that brings the hand out first. Good point, good point. Uh, yes, um, and it's probably worth talking a bit about our experiences with the hand before we go to the AI. So, okay, story events. Uh, ben, uh, Matt. Or Matt? Uh, if you can riff for a second here, I'm trying to pull it up. Yep, no problem. It's on, um, oh, it's Regal, Regal Visitors, isn't it? Regal Visit. It's on page 149. So if you could read that for me, because it's upside down for me, and I can't figure out how to rotate it easily. Okay, no problem. Um so the story event Regal Visit, the hand strides into the settlement. The survivors' thoughts vanish as they fall to their knees, struck dumb by its glorious, incomprehensible presence. Add the hand to the Nemesis Encounter list. Add the Nemesis Encounter at the hand to the timeline two years from now, and the hand begins the inspection. So, you know, imagine it's going to be a bit like at an airport. Uh, so the inspection itself is you roll a d10. Does he bring uh, um, latex gloves with him? I think he has a pair of metal gauntlets instead. This is Kingdom Death. He's not going to be pleasant about this inspection. So he's like the super TSA then, is what you're saying. I haven't had any experience with them, but uh, I'll take your word for it. Um, There are variations on each of these um, categories and the numbers. Essentially, the chart is broken into three sections. The uh, first section, um, one to three, and then you've got four to seven, and then eight to ten. But there are Within it, there's sort of like broken down sections depending on which principles you have and what innovations. So one to three, uh, the hand in one swift motion draws its sword, cleaving the lantern oven and four survivors asunder. You suffer minus four population. You have to return the lantern oven to the innovation deck. The only way you can avoid this is by challenging the hand. Um, this is actually kind of pretty bad in my opinion i mean have you guys ever rolled or or the one to three because i don't feel you have a choice you you kind of have to challenge because losing the lantern oven is a quite a setback i believe we have rolled that i want to say that it was in our first if not second streaming campaign that we did um and that's what forced us to challenge the hand just because you know the minus four population and as you said the lantern oven that's pretty detrimental and I want to say that it happened to us again in another campaign, but we had Accept the Darkness. Uh, so that's the uh, modifier that will actually make this a beneficial roll if you happen to roll a two or a three. 
Indeed, yes. Yeah. So if you have accepted darkness, the hand presents two infants to the kneeling survivors and you gain two population. And while just being given survivors is never as good as having them be birthed within your settlement, uh, it's always nice to have a couple of spots to uh, do all the dirty work around the place. Absolutely. And if you have uh, survival of the fittest, that's pretty nice, too, just because of how difficult it is to make the babies. Yeah, unless you want a bunch of troll faced flower people. Sure. Um, then we got with the results four to seven. The hand rampages through the settlement. You lose any resources in the settlement storage and suffer minus one population. Again, you can challenge the hand to avoid this loss. On a 5, 6, or a 7, if you have the guidepost innovation, which you possibly could have gained via the Kingsman's um, visit during Armored Stranger, the hand demonstrates sophisticated fighting arts. You gain one weapon mastery of your choice and add it to your settlement. So this is, like, really good. If, if you can engineer things well and make sure that the... Um, you're, you're, I think you have 7 or less population when the Armored Strangers turn up and then get through them and get to the regal visit. And, you know, then you've got a 30% chance of getting a free weapon mastery, you know, and hell, what are you going to pick? You know, shield, fist and tooth. Mm. Fist and tooth. Yeah. Fist and tooth is such a real pain in the ass to get that. I think that would be a huge one to to take, but I don't believe we've ever had guidepost, you know, early in any of our campaigns. So I've never actually read that effect that modifier for a five, six, seven role. And that is absolutely phenomenal. A freebie weapon mastery, especially the fact that you can choose whatever one you want is fantastic. And what year does this uh, happen on? Oh, I would hope you guys know that, you know, more about um, the people of the lantern than me. Josh, you're the bookkeeper. Oh, preparation, preparation. It's uh year 11. Yeah, I was going to say 12, but I'd have been wrong. Yeah, 11. So chances of you having Weapon Mastery by then is hopeful. Pretty slim. Pretty slim, though. Uh, Very unlikely, especially considering you're not really going to have taken anyone too valuable out to fight the Kingsman, um, unless you're particularly ahead of the curve. So, yeah, it's not that likely. It's very, very beneficial. Um then on the 8, 9, and 10, the hand points at survivor with the most hunt experience. A warble trapped in their throat as a warble? God, that, that is, that looks like a poot special. A warble trapped in their throat as their chest bursts open, expelling their organs, killing them. Um, I guess there is a warble trapped in their throat or something? Anyway, um, you lose the hunt survive, you lose the survive with most hunt XP and you can challenge the hand to avoid this loss. Effectively, he delivers a nice round of murder. Um, but on a 9 or a 10, uh, if you have Survivor the Fittest, the hand's voice sounds in all the survivors' heads. heads. None can recall what happened, but each feels profoundly changed. No endeavours may be spent this, lit se- this settlement phase, and all living survivors gain plus one permanent strength, which is, you know, not amazing, but uh, it's not bad. Isn't Warble and... a uh, flower night resource? The Warble flower? I can't remember. Yeah, the Warbling Bloom is the one that gives you the babies, I believe. Maybe it does. But I would question. like to point out that all of these that are negative, uh, it gives you the option to challenge. And to clarify what that is, uh, you can basically say no to the hand. And the hand accepts your challenge, stop the settlement phase, and depart for a special showdown with the hand. After the showdown, resume the settlement phase. Do not gain endeavors. Draw a settlement event card or advance a lantern year. So it basically adds a bonus showdown phase where you can fight the hand and hopefully... Uh, mitigate whatever horrible effects that he is imposing on you. So, Fen, Indeed. Do, you, do you always challenge the hand? Um, it would depend on the situation. Uh, 
I could like. Mm, I think if he rampages, uh, it depends on what set uh, resources I have. Because um, I mean, if if you're playing, uh, if you're playing a Gorm campaign, for example, you're never going to have many resources in the settlement storage by this stage anyway, because you're kind of used to living hand to mouth. Um, but I think a lot of the time I would consider challenging him because um, the second the level two hand is not too bad of a ramp up to face um, in Lantern Year 13. Uh, I mm, I think uh, the other thing though is I'm looking at the bottom row and a lot of the time I'm not going to get hit by the bad stuff. Yeah. Though, because like... simply those principles are pretty you know commonly taken amongst uh, our play styles. Indeed. Um, now that's where it nicely brings us on to the point I was going to say where you can see the hand has come here as the second part of the inspection that the king's men um, has started and he rewards you for falling into a certain um, society and I think it's clearly that this this is the kind of um, society they're trying to groom settlements for for um, the king further down the line. So you see he rewards people who have accepted darkness. If you've got a guidepost, which means that the Kingsman um, approved of what you're doing, you get rewarded. And if you've got survivor of the fittest, um, again, you get rewarded. So it's kind of the hand is if the hand turns up and he looks, he says, right, well, you're a bunch of really nasty, unpleasant bastards who have decided uh, that only the very best of you are, are going to be allowed to live, then I am okay with that, but if you're like looking after your young or your um, you know, uh, what is it, collective toil and and everything, he's 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 going to punish you. So he clearly has an agenda when he arrives as to how he wants the settlement to be. Very much uh, thematically pointing out that you know, uh, as we discussed in one of our previous sessions, that the uh, the survivors are kind of placed there. They're not so much randomly brought there, and. They are there for an unknown purpose, and it looks like being groomed to suit the king's needs. Yeah, they are in the king's land, so it's certainly that's the reason the kingsmen turn up in the first place. Yeah, and uh, that's one of the reasons why when you do play the alternate campaigns, the 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 effect of the kingsmen and the hand is greatly lessened. They're not as prominent in the story, and that's because the entities who are based uh, in charge of people of the stars and people of the sun are pretty powerful in themselves. So they can hold down their own turf. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll discuss that in a lot more detail when we get further down the line, when we finally get to talking about the Dragon King and the Sunstalker and their associated campaigns. But it's one of the interesting things I find when you compare People of the Lantern to People of the Stars and People of the Sun is seeing how differently the Nemesis encounters from the first get, from the core campaign play out in the other two. They are quite well. While they they're mechanically the same, and it's how they're delivered is is different. They're less tied into the story thread. Okay, so do we want to start talking about our personal experiences with Mister Hand? Certainly. Uh, do you guys want to go first? Because I think you, on the whole, actually face the hand um, more than me. So, without getting a little too spoilery for later in this same podcast, um, I don't think we've actually killed the hand. We've beaten him through his alternate win condition. Uh, am I wrong with that, Josh? We've tried. We've tried a couple of times, but uh, it always seems to fail. But uh, yeah, we've always used the second condition to win, but it's, it's one of my favorite fights thematically, but I hate streaming it. Yeah, it's actually a pretty horrible fight to stream just because it can get a little trudging to watch it. Um, just because it's a, it can be very formulaic going for the alternate win condition. 
And apologies for sounding a little too cryptic here, but we'll get into that in more detail later. Uh, how about you, Fen? Well, I will say the very first time I encountered the hand, I beat him by legitimately beating him. Um, and I will talk about that while we talk about the, the hand, how it happened. It was an unusual, unfortunate set of circumstances that caused it. Um, so I have experienced the um, the where you're supposed to beat him. Um, and I wasn't very impressed with the result of it. In fact, I felt it was rather on par with uh, what the Kingsman does to you. But ever since then, generally, uh, we, we we go for the, the alternate way of, of beating the hand as well, um, which I must say, not only like thematically, I think it's a fantastic fight. It's full of character. It's really interesting. It always gets people who for the first time they encounter it going, ooh, and ah, and like, ooh, that's different. Okay. But I think if you play it too many times, it can become a bit frustrating because there's not a lot of variation in it. Absolutely. Uh but yeah, I definitely agree that it's uh, fantastic in terms of theming, but mechanically, if you repeat it over and over again, it's a little similar if you don't try for one win condition over the other, or you just keep doing the same thing over and over again, which it tends to trap you into doing that for sure. Yeah, but I mean, why would anyone face the hand over and over again? That's a bit of a mystery, and how could they? Perhaps we'll find out a bit further down the line in this podcast. So, should we go to AI? I'm ready if you are. Right. So I'll start, first of all, with the level one hand. And uh, we're going to... I'm not going to go into the um, the stats for each version of hand um, immediately. But just a little bit of time, um, one at a time. So the level one hand, uh, he has... He gets ten basic actions. Um, basic AI, AI cards. Uh, he has... 10 flat so he always this is it he always gets these same 10 no matter what level you encounter him at um, he has five movement which is kind of irrelevant once you actually look at how he exists and 14 toughness which is very high for a level one monster but he does kind of appear at lantern year 11 to a lantern year 13 kind of window so it's not exactly uh, unheard of you should be able to take a monster with 14 toughness at that point he then has a series of traits. Um, now, the three of them are basically the same variations of each other. They are the lenses, uh, which represent his three eyes, or three lenses to his eyes, I should say. Sorry. Um, each one of these is colored in a different fashion, and the color matters um, in regards to the trait card I'm going to talk about afterwards. Uh, so you have the green lens, the red lens, and the blue lens. Essentially, these are double-sided cards. One side, which is in play, first of all, says closed. So, for example, the green lens closed. Uh, and then it, the text on it, it shows a nice eye closed um, uh, with a very unusual set of eyelashes. Uh, and it says when a survivor with a green aura wounds the monster, flip the green lens to open. When a survivor with a white aura wounds the monster, select a closed lens to flip open. Only flip only one lens this way per wound. So um, that'll make a little bit more sense when I talk about the polarized aura in a moment. But essentially, each three of these is the same. There's one green lens, one red lens, one blue lens. They're flipped by survivors with a matching color aura or a survivor with um, the white aura. Now, on the back side, uh, it basically gives the hand a different key um, symbol, depending on which eye is open. Uh, it's, it's the same symbol for each one, but different color. Uh, it's a blue eye or a green eye or a red eye. 
Uh, in addition, um, there is a, a penalty, which is that when the particular lens is open, for example, when the green lens is open, uh, attack rolls from survivors with green aura only hit on a perfect hit. So it becomes very hard to hit. And this is sort of part of the reason that he's so difficult to take down is that these lenses, just in themselves passively when they flip up, can make it incredibly hard to handle him. And um, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people when they first play this get caught off guard by uh, this this whole experience. They start attacking him and, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden um, they realize they're in a a bit of a rough situation where they can barely hit this guy and he's doing all sorts of extra things. Yeah, when you don't know anything, you go on blind and you have these builds that have a bunch of blue, red, or green affinities and start hitting this thing, you realize I'm screwed. Yeah, yeah. So those lenses link to the polarized aura, which is a status that's handed out to each survivor. Um, and it's if a survivor has the same number of green, red, or blue affinities, they have a white aura. Uh, if they have more affinities of any color, red, blue, or green, their aura is that color. A survivor's aura may have at the most two colors. So if you've got a tied number of two auras, you could be red, green, or red, blue, or blue, green. Um, or you can have a single one, so you could just be red, or you can have a white aura, which is pretty rough in this fight. If you've ever had a white aura, it's bad. And that's depending on uh, how you play it, too. But yeah, it could be very detrimental. And yeah, as you were saying, this whole uh, auras and how it affects both the hitting of the monster when his eyes are open, and then on top of what we'll get into in just a minute, the different triggers that he has... Uh, for different aura effects can really, or depending on which eye is open, can really screw you over. Yeah. Um, Well, we actually faced the level two hand last week, and I wear prismatic armor, so I had seven white affinities, effectively. So he targeted me with everything for the entire fight, except for, like, a few unusual circumstances. But it was always the survivor with the most green affinities, and I was like, that's me. Most blue, that's me. White aura, that's me. Yay! It was it was rough. I tell you, I didn't even think about that with the prismatic armor. Yeah, that could be a real fun fight for sure. I'd like to try that one out. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. I, I tell you, if I didn't have such a good um, tool loadout on top of that, I, I think I'd have probably lost my survivor during the fight because it was rough. Uh, his next trait that he has is ghost step. Um, Ghost Step has unlimited range. Uh, You move the monster until it passes through the target, then stop and turn to face the target. Any survivors the hand passes through while performing Ghost Step suffer one brain damage per monster level instead of collision. Any survivors the hand ends its movement on while performing Ghost Step suffer collision normally. So the hand, basically his movement's almost irrelevant because he Ghost Steps most of the time. I think maybe even all of the time. I can't remember for sure. So, uh, and um, there's one other interesting thing about Ghost Step, which just as an aside, you'll notice that he doesn't deal star brain damage. He specifically deals one brain damage per monster level, so he's not affected by Fetosaurus. Oh, that's interesting that it's worded that way as well. And yeah, just to note that Ghost Step can be quite annoying with that one brain damage per monster level if you are doing it uh, with a tank absorbing most of the damage because they're going to be getting Ghost Stepped every turn. And possibly suffering a bunch of uh, brain traumas. Uh, yes, just, yeah. Just to note, that star didn't come out until the expansions. So yeah. this might actually still take effect of it because the star replaced monster level. 
That's interesting. Um, it, well, we'll have to see what happens in 1.5, um, really. I mean, I guess uh, given that... Uh, well, I'd probably take it rules as written because I think Fetosaurus is good enough as it is. But uh, yeah, I imagine it is supposed to be reduced by Fetosaurus. So uh, take yourself along two or three Fetosauruses and um, he's not going to be much of a problem. But that's not something many people are going to manage. Okay, back on topic with the core campaign. Uh, his final trait is impossible eyes. Um, the hand can see everything. When the hand suffers a wound, place a token on impossible eyes instead of moving a card to the wound stack. Uh, then he's got a limit on here, one, two, or three. The limit uh, for level one is 12. Uh, for two is 17. And for three plus is 20. And when the number of tokens on this card reaches the limit, you remove them and flip this card to respect. And respect is how you beat the hand by attacking him through wounds. Uh, I will read respect uh, when we talk about the reward section of the hand rather than talk about it now. But uh, the main thing to note about this is wounding him does not remove his AI cards at all. He's always good. You can't stop him from doing what he wants to do. He's uh, he, he doesn't take damage the same way as any other monster in the game. Right, so this basically takes away some of your uh, control aspects of using the Rawhide Armor set and manipulating the AI deck with the headband. Uh, basically, it's, oh, it doesn't matter if you put this on top or the one underneath, because he'll get to it eventually. You're not going to take it out with one of your attacks. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So uh, what you, you build up there overall is a bit of a bit of a picture of what the hand is like. He's got these um, these incredible eyes with these three different lenses. Uh, he's got a lot of power that's kind of locked away. Um, and he, he, well, he has the ability to phase through, at least through living matter. But probably I'd say uh, it also includes um, uh, stone matter as well, because he isn't really bothered by any terrain that happens to be on the table whatsoever. Um Another thing that's worth noting with regards to Ghost Step is a lot of the the, the showdown board is set up with a hat, with a face in the middle of the board, and a lot of the time the hand returns to that face after he is uh, after he's performed various actions. Not always, but uh, a lot of the time he does. Uh, now the last. Go I on. wanted to make note just when you're talking about the eyes, you said the weird eyelashes. They're they're actually little hands. That's... Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was hinting at that. But, um... They're really creepy looking. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, so the last thing to talk about before we move on to the AI cards is the hand's basic action and his instinct. So his basic action is to pick a random survivor, and if there is no target, he performs the penalty. Then there's a flow step, then he performs ghost step, attacking the target. So the important thing about this flow step here is it gives people a chance to dash to avoid getting hit by ghost step, with the exception of the person he's targeting, because they got no chance. You can't dash unlimited, out dash unlimited range. Um, so he will uh, go step through, attack the target. His basic attack is two speed, accuracy two plus, five damage. And after damage, he bashes and knockbacks ten. And then he goes back into the center of the board, which is on top of the stone face in the middle. And the penalty, which is ass, just to put it lightly. Yeah, the penalty is the thing I think that really makes the whole hand encounter hang together. Because uh, he's sort of like, well, as we'll see as we go through his AI cards, he's a bit um, demanding with what he would like things, like the survivors to do at times. He's very, you know, he's very powerful. He's very arrogant. He's not Old Man Phoenix levels of arrogant, but uh, he's certainly pretty damn um, impressive. Um, 
but the penalty is that the hand points at a random survivor and they have to roll on the table below. So uh, if you roll a one on a d10, you're dead. Your brain crushes, your skull crushes your brain, you die. Uh, on a two plus, your ribs suddenly twist inward to puncture your heart, and if you have no survival, you die. Otherwise, you lose all survival and suffer the broken ribs, severe body injuries. So defying him is going to cause people to die pretty quickly. And losing your survival alone is bad enough in this fight, but the fact that if you've got no survival, you're dead no matter what you roll is huge. Absolutely, and it's not like you have very many good options of what to roll there. It's either you're dead, or if this happens to you one more time, you're dead. Indeed, but uh, it's still nicely done, because this isn't... It is literally, as described, it's the penalty. This isn't so much a um, rocks fall on your head and you die situation you're taking the risk of this happening. You know, if, if you decide to defy the hand um, to by removing targets and causing the penalty to happen, and you've got somebody on the board with no survival, you're making that risk that 25% of the time they're going to die. Absolutely. And as you were kind of alluding to, there's many ways to mitigate this. It's not like this is going to happen to you just out of sheer bad luck and circumstance, you're basically going to have to actively seek out, do I want to deal with this or do I want to deal with that? Indeed. So that is the, uh, that's a lot to take in for his traits um, and his basic card. He does have a lot going on just there alone. Um, but essentially, it's very simple to use once you start playing with it because uh, it's effectively when you hit him, you have to flip certain cards uh, when you reach certain token levels, you have to flip other cards. Apart from that, he's pretty kind of, you know, like simple in this manner. But when he gets the AI deck, things can get complicated with how his AI deck interacts with his hit location deck. And even just how his AI deck interacts with his uh, the auras that are and the eyes are open. That really screws things up for you because it can it can be really interesting. And we're going to get that into that uh, just about now, right? Yeah, we are. We're about to go into the AI cards, and I'm going to start with the uh, the ones that uh, you had a little bit of a theory about who the um, the hand is modeled after, didn't? Don't you, Matt? Would you catch you? Yeah. So we kind of noticed thematically that uh, the Kingsman is very Michael Jackson esque in the way that some of his interactions go, and uh, the the way the flavor text is on the cards. Uh, but I seem to look at the hand and notice that he's got a lot of cards that are boxing related and the fact that he's got a lot of bravado and he seemed, you know, a lot of hubris to him. He reminds me a lot of, uh, Muhammad Ali, that kind of aspect to him and that he's basically rope-a-doping you this entire fight and, uh, kind of playing off that he's faster than you. He's floating around the ring and then he just beats the crap out of you in the process. Yeah, float like a ghost, sting like a, an absolute truck. Like a dung beetle. He's not Mike Tyson? He's not Mike Tyson. No, he's way more subtle than Mike Tyson. But uh, I like the idea of another hand being all like Mike Tyson, with including a bite your ear off, ear off AI card. That would be perfect as well. That's a, an expansion card, right? Well, there's an expansion card that causes you to lose your nose, so, you know, why not? That's very true. Okay, so we will start with, um, he's got two of these in the deck. This is the basic action bullet jabs, which of course, you know, is, is a boxing move, as you, as you nicely pointed out. Um, this targets a survivor with the most blue affinities, or when you play with me, it targets me, or the closest threat. Uh, if there's no target, he performs the penalty. It's generally very hard for there to be no target in this case. Um, I don't find that the hand knocks people over too much. Um, 
again, he has the standard flow step before the actual action, and then he performs a ghost step uh, and attacks the target. This one is speed 5, accuracy 2+, plus, uh, with 2 damage per hit. But depending on which eyes are open, it has additional traits. The yeah, first, this, yeah, this is on. definitely where the uh, problematic areas come in. I mean, on top of it, a 5-speed attack is pretty gnarly to begin with, even if it is just 2+, plus for 2 damage. Uh, but the lenses here that modify it, if the red lens is open, you get bleed two, which not even bleed one, bleed two. Yeah, there's not many monsters that do deal bleed two, especially not at this stage of the game. Uh, then if the blue lens is open, the attack gains plus four accuracy and plus one damage. So he's probably going to hit you then if his blue eye is open. Uh, yeah, yeah, that certainly cancels out a lot of evasion that normally um, survivors try and stack. I actually really like that there is something like this that has such a strong uh, effect against evasion. And then just in case the plus accuracy wasn't enough, if the green lens is open, hits cannot be blocked or dodged, so he will hit you. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's uh... So you can imagine what it would be like if you have all three eyes open just from this attack. It's horrific. Right, so then on a level one hand, you're looking at five hit locations that take three damage each, and then you get bleed two afterwards. Yep, that's uh, that's that's quite bad. Um, so do you want to tell us about the liver blow, Matt? Sure thing. So the liver blow is uh, the next card in there. It's The target's going to be the survivor with the most green affinities. Or as Fen was saying, if you're playing with him, it's going to be Fen. Uh, it also then afterwards targets the closest threat, and again, if no target, then the penalty. So probably not going to have the penalty happen unless there's some weird circumstances going on. Uh, then you have your standard flow step, and then his ghost step, and then his attack. And this is a 2-speed, two 2-plus two accuracy for 5 damage. And this one's lens triggers are probably even nastier than the last, so Fen, you want to mention these? Yep, okay, if his red eye is open, then he gets plus 3 speed and plus 3 damage. Uh, if his blue eye is open, the target gains plus 5 insanity, which isn't so bad. Uh, and then if his green eye is open, the target loses all survival, which is an absolute nightmare. So at full power, this one is a 5 speed, 2 plus accuracy, 8 damage attack that drains all of your survival and gives you 5 insanity. The insanity is a little nice for a ghost step, though. Yeah, it does help, yeah. Um, but uh, I not sure that it's worth um, opening the blue eye for, um, to be honest. It's sort of a nice bonus if you just happen to be in a bad situation or you've got somebody in your party who has decided to hit the hand for no reason other than they want to. Josh? No, that was our first Twitch stream. And, uh, Twitch yeah, they, uh, they, smacked they got a little overzealous, but again, we didn't explain to them the way that you can play the hand. And uh, we just kind of sat back and watched the festivities. Yeah, yeah. there's always someone, and I've got a lovely story about th that someone in one of my groups when we get to it, when we get to the trap. Uh, right, uh, and then we've got Thunderbolt Right, which uh, targets the survivor with most red affinities, uh, or the closest threat, second one, or then in a strange situation there's no target, uh, he will perform the penalty. Then there's a flow step. Then he ghost steps, attacking the target at speed 2, accuracy 4+, plus, damage is 7. And Matt, do you want to go through the uh, three triggers? Yeah, so as if, you know, they seem to be getting progressively worse too. And the funny thing is they start off really nasty. Um, this one is after damage, knockback 12, and bash, which 
isn't terrible, but knockback 12 puts you like a full two turns away from getting back to the monster if you have dash. Uh, if the blue lens is open, it's plus one speed, but also it's headhunter. So all of a sudden you have the opportunity of the monster to hit you with three speed, seven damage, where everything hits your head. And then finally you have, if the green lens is open, you get, sorry about that, you get minus three to severe injury results. And that's even nastier. So you're talking about full speed, this attack's going to, or full lens is open is going to be 3 speed, 4 plus accuracy for 7 damage with knockback 12, everything hitting your head, and then you're going to get minus 3 to severe injury results, so all of a sudden you die on a 7 or lower on the head table. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so uh, that uh, that blue eye is looking pretty good now, isn't it, Josh? Yep. Okay, and uh, next of all, before we we've got 4 duration cards, before we get to them... We're going to get to the, uh, the, 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 the unusual card in them all, which is the soft chuckle. The noise fills the survivors with unprecedented dread. All non-death survivors lose one survival and roll 1d10. At each survivor's courage to the rare result rolled. On a 15+, plus, the survivor is knocked down in fear. Otherwise, they suffer five brain damage, gain a minus one accuracy token from their shaking limbs, and full move directly away from the monster. There's then a flow step. And then the monster stretches its limbs. Flip all lenses to closed. So how do you feel about this one, guys? Because I think this one's great from a flavor standpoint. Yeah, it's pretty awesome from a flavor standpoint. And then if you're actually going to beat the crap out of the hand, it is very imperative that you see where this card is and place it around where it would benefit you the most uh, just because it closes all of the eyes for you. And as we've seen, some of these AI cards get really nasty with certain triggers, certain lenses open, and that's not even when we get to the discussing of the hit locations yet. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, this is, when this card comes, you get a little bit of a hint of, of what we'll talk about a bit furthermore when we get into the hit locations, which is just, how powerful the hand actually is and how much he is you know sandbagging throughout this whole fight you mean rope dope right absolutely yes all right so we have four lovely duration cards um now matt would you like to take the first one of these uh would you like to give us lineup i like lineup Ooh, sure thing and is this the first time we're seeing duration cards uh in the core game uh no there is vanish from the um from the white lion which we did talk about before but i think it is probably worth me uh quickly running through how duration cards work again it's just uh because this the hand is primarily the area where durations really do uh take effect this is typically so, the first time when you find a duration card because uh vanish is a legendary card so you don't normally find it a level one doesn't get that so yeah, you'll have to give me a moment um, while I just get the right section in the book, because this isn't one I look up very often. I do want to read it correctly from the book rather than uh, do it from memory. Absolutely. And yeah, as Joshua was saying, I believe this was definitely the first time we encountered the duration card. And it was a little bit of confusion on our parts of how to exactly handle it and what you can and can't do in regards to if you have the rawhide headband and such. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, so duration um, is mentioned on page 216 of the core rulebook in the glossary section. Duration cards are drawn twice. The first time a duration card is drawn, you perform any 
when drawn face down actions. Then instead of discarding the card, you place it face up on top of the AI deck. The next time a monster draws an AI card, when it draws the duration card for the second time, you perform any when drawn face up actions and then discard the card after resolving. Some duration cards have persistent effects while they are face up on top of the AI deck. And on top of that, you cannot move them around with the Rawhide headband. Uh, There is no fiddling around with the deck while a duration card is face up on the pile. Absolutely not. And in the case of the hand, there's no getting rid of it either. Although in the case of the White Lion, if you do get rid of the uh, Vanish card on top of the deck, um, the game performs a Fatal Exception and halts. Which I think I may have mentioned during the White Lion episode. Yeah, I think we talked about that. Yeah, it's a bit of a fun one, that. Okay, so, um, Matt, line up. Line up is the first of his duration cards, and that's when this card is drawn face down, the monster casually opens its arms. How friendly of him, he wants a hug. Uh, When this card is drawn face up, target and attack all survivors in the right spot. And the right spot is the two spaces immediately in front of him, as well as the two spaces to the left and right of those. So it is going to be the six spaces in a line centered directly in front of him. And this attack is going to be base, two speed, two plus accuracy for six damage. And then, as we've seen before, we've got some lovely triggers on that. Yes, indeed. So the red one is after damage bleed two. The blue one is attack gains plus one speed and plus one damage, and the green is attack cannot be blocked or dodged, which uh, should be fairly familiar because it's very, very similar uh, to the bullet jabs, if I remember correctly, just with uh, speed, a change on speed, uh, plus one speed instead of plus four accuracy. Um, so at full strength, this attack's going to be uh, three speed, two plus accuracy, seven damage to all survivors. Uh, that cannot be blocked or dodged and deals bleed too. You'll notice as well, um, they actually, when they designed this, put six spaces in, which is uh, a little one of those few places where they paid attention to there being potentially six players. And the most important thing to note here on this duration card, and this is, I believe, on every duration card, uh, if the monster doesn't attack every living survivor, perform the penalty or there's actually some duration cards that are slightly different, Uh, but he needs to attack everyone on the hunt board in order for the penalty not to happen. So this is a a mean one, because it's going to hit everyone. Yeah, this is one of those points where you get a real flavor for the hand's personality, where literally is just saying, all of you guys, line up, I'm going to hit you all, all of you, and if you don't, then I'm going to potentially kill one of you. Yeah, this is him toying with you to the fullest extent of his power because before he's smacking you around and it hurts you, but in this point he's just like, I'm just going to waste my turn and I'm going to tell you all what to do. And this is one of the hardest cards to deal with with the hand. Otherwise, he only attacks one target the whole time. So if you have one tank, you can kind of manage it. This is the one where you're like, all right, everyone needs to get hit now. Although this one's kind of funny if you have the shield mastery, right, Josh? <laughs> yeah, you can do the conga line if you line them all up right. So as a reminder to everyone, with a shield mastery, it allows the shield master to then swap spots if the person next to them is being attacked. So if you have the shield at the head of the line, uh, you could have the shield, I'm sorry, the tank. You can get the tank hit first. Then when the next person goes, swap the tank out and just keep doing that up the line. It's kind of funny, uh, but it works technically. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be pretty effective if you've got a tank with a good amount of evasion. 
I would like to point out from personal experience, we had one campaign where we had a ridiculously overpowered green savior that Josh took out to the hand fight. And it basically just turned into a one V one of the green savior with two shields, uh, conga lining it and taking every single hit that the tank, that the, uh, the hand did. He wasn't even a green savior. He was just the almost green savior level of insane stats. Yeah. Uh, right, I'll take the next one, which is take your best shot. Again, duration card. When this is drawn face down, the monster turns to face away from the most survivors. Then it moves one space forward and crosses its arms. While this is in play, the monster gains minus 10 evasion. If the trap card is real for any reason, place the monster behind the revealer, and the revealer suffers the following. In the case of a red lens open, it's two random severe head injuries. Blue, roll twice on the brain trauma table, and green, suffer two random severe body injuries. Uh, then, when this card is drawn face up, you draw another AI card. So, this is like really, when like you said lining up map was a little bit taunting, this one really genuinely is just taunting. Absolutely. It's, he's basically, it's exactly what the card says take your best shot. He's basically saying to you, I am stronger than you. You're not going to really hurt me. Just go for it so I can laugh at you when you fail. Yeah, and there's that extra punish if uh, the trap card happens to be the, the card that you do hit while attacking him, which is a nice little extra thing. Um, although, you know, it's going to be rare, I think, that you do have the eyes open and hit the trap. Maybe the first time you face the hand, this might happen. Um, but I, I love this card. It is very, very cool. It's plenty of character in it. And uh, again, this is one of those things that makes people the first time they play against the hand go, ooh, ah, and laugh and have a good fun time when they realize that there's this guy who's putting on theatrics and, you know, basically mocking uh, the survivors. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, your turn, Matt. You can do it. You can, you can have a rude slap. Oh boy. Uh, so Rude Slap here is yet another duration card, and that is when this card is drawn face down, the monster points at the ground. Uh, very Babe Ruth-esque, uh, just thinking about it in my head. He's kind of pointing to what needs to happen. Uh, and then when this card is drawn face up, target and attack a survivor in the right spot. And so the right spot here is the space directly in front of the monster on his left-hand side. Yeah, the right spot is on his left. Because, you know, well, you're gonna, he's probably going to hit you with his right. I don't know. Uh, but it is a two-speed, two-plus accuracy, six-damage attack with, again, some lovely triggers. Yeah. When you have the red eye open, you gain the classic bleed two after damage. With the blue eye open, he gets plus one speed, plus one damage. And with the green eye open, the attack can't be blocked or dodged. So this is the same as uh, lineup, if I Remember correctly from a moment ago? Yes, it's exactly the same as lineup, same uh, same sets on the eyes, except it's only one person who's being hit here. And of course, as per lineup, if the monster doesn't attack, if nobody stands, steps up to get slapped by the hand, then he's going to perform the penalty. And again, this is just really the cockiness of the hand showing. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a, a version of Scorpion's uh, spear pull, but it's uh, he doesn't even spear someone and pull them over he just points to the ground and says he doesn't even say anything just points and waits for them to walk up it's the implied get over here yes indeed and finally of the four duration cards we have the full powered flick when this card is drawn face down the monster proudly raises a single finger um which uh i i know the temptation to think that he raises his middle finger but i'm pretty sure he just 
raises just one his index finger. But you know, who knows? Might some people do flick with their middle finger? Um, when the card is then drawn face up, you target the survivor with the most armor points. There's a flow step um, to give people opportunity to dash because he the target is doomed, and then he's going to ghost step and then attack the target. Um, now this is speed two, accuracy two plus four damage which is not that notable compared to some of his attacks, but there's one particular thing that's worth noting. If the red eye is open when you perform this, after damage, this attack gets bash and knock back 19, which by itself, you know, that's not too bad, but um, there has an additional effect, which is during knockback, instead of stopping at a board edge, you go flying off into the darkness never to be heard from, and you're dead. So this is like why having the red eye open is incredibly dangerous because this this attack is is horrific that you can dash around to adjust things a bit and uh, look for terrain to collide into um if you are going to get knocked back but uh you know if you get caught unawares by this then it's it's kind of funny and uh, this is the this is the instant death kind of mechanic i like in this game because it is literally well it's your fault it happened it's a good piece of design Absolutely. And one of the things that is really interesting about this card is it kind of gives you, this is the card that really gives you the insight as to the hand's power that he has. Uh, The first time that I was playing it with Josh, you know, these cards are all coming up and you're just like, well, damn, he's really strong. He's really hard to hit. This is a strong monster. And you kind of get the idea that he's toying with you. But the fact that he's just like, okay, now I'm going to show you what I can do. And he just flicks the strongest person in the group and flicks them into oblivion if his red eye is open. It's comical, but at the same time, it leaves you with that kind of jaw-drop moment of, oh, goodness. Yeah, this guy is on another level. His power level is over 9,000. Oh, you didn't say it quite, you know, enthusiastically enough, but I'll, I'll accept it. I I only know it entirely from the the memes that are on the internet. I've I've not actually watched Dragon Ball Z, but I know that Poots is a big fan of it, and he's given us a scouter as one of the promo cards coming ahead. So uh, yeah, that was actually uh, I think that was Gray Dyer who actually made that concept and sent it to him. Yeah, I remember him doing that. Yeah, and now it's the promo card for the um, perfect Dung Beetle Knight, which is very cool. So that is all the duration cards, correct, Fen? Correct. So we're going to, before we move on to the um, the advanced cards, which there's two, uh, it's worth just touching on what he is like when you face him at level two and level three. Um, his traits don't change at all, um, but at level two, he gains an extra point of movement, uh, an extra point of toughness, putting him at 15, an extra speed and an extra damage, which is, that's kind of a standard increase in power for a monster um, going from level 1 to level 2, usually they gain a little bit of toughness, extra movement, speed, and damage. So that's pretty much in line with what you'd expect. But the uh, the level 3 upgrade is where you just kind of laugh when you see the stat increase. Yes, it is. Because at level 2, uh, he gains one additional advanced card, so he only has like uh, 12 wounds. But level 3, he gains his second AI card, which means he's using the whole AI deck. He gets His movement stays the same at 6, but his toughness doubles to 30. His speed increases to plus 3, and his damage goes at plus 6. So, I mean, a level, the, all, all of the level 3s in the core game are pretty damn frightening, but this is this is hard to even just tank, this is. 
Yeah, just to note that he has 12 AI cards, but you don't do damage to him. He has 20 tokens you have to put on him. Yes, yes, you're right, yeah. And uh, that's the level 2 or the level 3, Josh? 20 is 3. Okay, yeah, 20 what's, is the, three. what's the level 2 again? 17. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so, good luck doing, you know, 20 damage to him with 30 toughness. I've had exactly two survivors in my entire time who could have wounded him, and one of them was a, uh, she was a, a, she had a constellation unlocked, so effectively, you know, she's like a savior in many aspects, and she was a sword master with the black sword. That's the kind of power that we needed to, to even consider harming this guy, and even then we didn't want to. So you're talking about possibly one of the best survivors you could make, you know, conceptually in the game, uh, just being able to barely take him on with, you know, that's not saying he won't beat the crap out of you first. Uh, yeah, she she could have wounded the hand, uh, but I don't think she'd been able to wound him for very long. Um, I, I can't, this is, level three is such a big spike jump up in power that it's, it's obviously, that's not where the hand ends up. He's, he's way more powerful than that. And I do hope in the future we see a level four hand. I've often talked about wanting to see the hand unleashed. Um, I'd like and, to see what you know, even if it's just are. like a deck. Yes, yes. I want to see him really cut loose, but I don't know if it's going to be possible within the frame of the survivors we have, because obviously he is, he's really powerful. It'd be really interesting to see like a legendary monster version of the hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, Matt, do you want to take small uppercut or king's palm? Uh, let me find. Okay, so I got king's palm right in front of me now. And yeah, that is one it. of his advanced cards, and it's going to be a random survivor. So this is going to kind of throw a monkey wrench into your plans if you're going solely for uh, one person tanking it. And, you know, obviously no target is the penalty. So you got your flow, and then the monster clasps his hands together with a thunderous boom. All non-deaf adjacent survivors suffer five damage to the head location. Yeah, Mr. Miyagi and claps. Flavor-wise, this kind of reminds me of like how the Hulk does the uh, like a sonic clap or whatever it's called in the comic book. Yes. That's kind of what I envision. Yeah. Uh, then you have another flow after that, and then he's going to attack you. So then he's going to do Ghost Step. Uh, target is doomed. And then it's going to be a one-speed attack for two-plus accuracy. That's going to do nine damage. And after damage, we have Bleed 4. So if you have any bleeding tokens on you already, you will die uh, unless you have that ability. What's the uh, fighting art that increases your uh, bleed count, uh, bleed ability? I can't remember. It's from the Sunstalker expansion. So if you're core game only, good luck. And then on top of that, too, it's also going to give you minus four to severe injury rolls. Uh, so m- this really is the monster attempting to kill you. I mean, and- if it hits and you don't have the armor to take that, you're going to take a severe injury and get one bleed anyway. So you're dead. Just oh, that's true. no bleeds. Yeah. You're, Absolutely. you're pretty much dead. <laughs> and this, again, is targeting killing you purposely because there's one more flow, and then if the target is dead, draw an AI card. So he basically is going to kill someone and then be like, okay, who's next? So, Josh, how do you deal with the king's palm? Um, level one is not that bad because it only has one speed. Oh, you are doomed. I forgot about that. Shield. Block. That's the easiest. Well, and this also isn't in the level one hand, correct? Because he has no advanced cards in level one. So this only... Absolutely. Level brings, two minimum. Brings up in level two. Yeah. it's so, so this is actually one where you can bury one card in the hands deck. 
and this might be the one card you bury. And so what you're saying there is, while generally it's kind of pointless to do the raw, not pointless, but it's not as beneficial to rawhide headband the hand. Um, this is one of the cards that would be nice to continuously put it second from the top over and over again. And it is very doable as well, just because if you're playing the secondary win condition of tanking, you're going to have uh, a lot of free actions to do stuff as you please with. Yes, indeed, yeah. So that's a, that's a good point. Um, I've generally just tanked my way through the King's Palm whenever it's come up. Um, but I can see in particular against level 3 King's Palm, that's probably not an option. I mean, jeez, what's that? Speed 4? 15 damage? Yeah. Unless you've got a ton of evasion. And even then, that's a hell of a risk. And you're doomed, so you can't freaking dodge anything. Absolutely. You've got, what, best two block 2? That's about as good as you can manage against this? Yep. So... Oh, and fencing, but that's an expansion card, so... <laughs> yeah, that's, uh... Well, uh, mine, mine's nowhere near as exciting as yours. Matt, mine's just a small uppercut, which targets a random survivor with a white aura, uh, also known as me. Um, the closest threat, or, or no target, the penalty. Uh, the actual numbers rolled on here are identical to the King's Palm. It's speed 1, accuracy 2+, plus, and damage 9. Um... But instead of having the joyous minor bleed four guaranteed and the minus four severe injury, instead this one has on a red lens plus one speed. Uh, blue is after damage target is knocked down, and green after damage target loses all survival. And then this one always draws an AI card. Uh, I suppose I should sorry I should have said um, that after he targets he will ghost step. So there's still the f- um, flow step for you to dodge around and uh, dash around and get into a good position to avoid getting too badly punished by it. Um, but yeah, it's quite light compared to the King's Palm. Still not a uh, a lightweight in itself though. No, no. I mean this is uh, it, as well. This is a small uppercut. This isn't a big uppercut. He's barely winding up on this one at all. Yeah, the uh, the flavor of that just being the small uppercut kind of, again, gives you the understanding of, yeah, he's got a lot more power than he's showing you. Yeah, this is what I think is kind of fun about when Kingdom Death Design is done right. It shows you without uh, actually spelling things out. And here it's actually kind of showing you in what he doesn't do. You know, you're left questioning, well, how far could he go? What, you know, what are his limits? I don't, you know. You don't know what happens if he does a proper uppercut or a big uppercut. I mean, somebody's head probably goes into orbit. All right, and then we have uh, the last card, right? The applause. Yes, we do. Um, right, so we the applause is the bottom card of the deck. It's always at the bottom, uh, except if it gets shuffled, uh, moved around via um, rawhide. Uh, as you say, if you're burying the king's palm, you can move it up a little further if you're fortunate um when applause you when you reach applause uh, you get to draw it and survivors fall to their knees in agony their bones suddenly twisting and changing for each survivor cure all broken injuries and roll 1d10 and then end the showdown and the survivors are victorious so this is where we were hinting to before about what you do as the alternate wind condition against the hand is effectively you weather the storm you go through and you, um, all of his actions, you basically uh, humor him and do what he says. And then at the end of it all, he gives you a round of applause. He fixes all your broken injuries. You roll a dice, you roll a one, and you die. Or on a two to three, you spend one survival or die from shock, which means if you've been taking the penalty, you're probably dead. So, you know, don't take the penalty. Always do what the hand wants. 
Uh, on four to six, you gain a permanent plus on strength, and on a seven plus, you gain a permanent plus on strength, permanent plus on accuracy, permanent plus on evasion, and a random fighting art. So this is like what people want from the hand. This is why you go against the hand. Fixing broken injuries alone is amazing. Can do a huge amount for a worn out survivor. Um, but when you get seven plus on this, it's just incredible. Yeah, I believe in one of our. Uh streaming campaign playthrough is the first time we fought the hand three out of the four survivors rolled seven plus and all of a sudden it's like okay well we know who we're taking on a bunch of the future hunts now because they're all superheroes yes indeed um and then the counterpart to this which is on the back side of impossible eyes so if you manage to deal 12 tokens to the level one hand for example is respect um which is uh, the, the card flips over and then the next time the monster suffers a wound, it is impressed and target the attacker. The hand draws its blade. All survivors are doomed. Survivors within two squares of the hand are scorched by the hot air from the speed of the attack. They suffer two damage and their flammable gear is destroyed. Archive it. Roll 1d10. On the result of a 2+, plus, the target suffers 10 damage with minus 420 severe injury roll results. If they survive, they gain the Swordsman's Promise secret fighting art. The hand stops, the showdown ends, and the survivors are victorious. So that is the two ways you beat the hand. And you can just see um, immediately that obviously applause is far like less punishing than respect, but you would hope that the Swordsman's Promise secret fighting art is really good to make up for the difference. I mean, the chance of four survivors getting plus on strength, accuracy, evasion, and random fighting art versus one survivor getting chopped by a attack that's quite likely to kill them uh, in exchange for a secret fighting art. So, uh, you know, do you remember Swordsman's Promise, guys? Not off the top of my head, actually. Believe, How about you, Josh? I believe it's if you have a sword in your gear grid at the beginning of the showdown, you get up to the maximum survival of the settlement. That's exactly what it is, and that's why it's junk. Well, not complete junk, but as a secret fighting art goes, I mean, come on. Yeah, that's not particularly good, considering I'd say the majority of the time when we're departing on hunts, we get pretty close to near max survival. Yeah, it's not hard to do your your survival max. in Uh, This this is something that I wish that... uh, Poots and Co. were taking suggestions on like stuff that not just tweaks, but were actually taking suggestions on stuff that needs to be changed. Because Sorsons Promise needs some work. I mean, this is not. There's no reason to fight the hand. We got a guy who you could try and beat in two different ways, which should be interesting. But as it stands, there's only one choice. This is like protect the young versus five of the fittest all over again, just within one fight. You know, there's no point trying to take him out. Yeah, it's a little weird. I'm not a, a huge fan of that one. I guess that's also another reason why we've always basically gone solely for the alternate win condition, which in our case has become the default win condition for the hand, and that's tanking the fight. I think it's the default um, condition for just about everybody who knows what they're doing against the hand. I mean, I don't see any reason to be attacking him at all unless, uh, you know, you get very, very fortunate. But even then, this reward is not good enough. So, yeah, it's a bit of a shame, and uh, I hope maybe sometime in the future this is an area that gets looked at and possibly addressed. Absolutely. Uh, so is there anything else you wanted to mention with the AI cards, or are we going to jump over to hit locations now? Um, well, I I want to take a moment just to get my thoughts together on um, very various things and what you do. Um, would you mind just sort of summarizing what the AI teaches us about the hand and what we get from the AI cards and, and the flavor of it? Yeah, so flavor-wise, the AI cards really point to the hand being kind of 
way more powerful than he's letting on. He's just here to toy with the settlement and make fun of you in the process. Uh, and then if you do happen to beat him, he gets pissed off and tries to chop you in half. Uh, but more importantly, it's make sure you manage the lenses because they can make some of these really hard-hitting attacks near impossible to weather. And he is going to be a real pain in the ass to you. Uh, more importantly, tanking the fight is, and tanking means not in losing on purpose, but in uh, bringing a tank along to deal with all of his attacks and purposefully not attacking, uh, weathering the storm, as you said before, Fen, is the way to go just because the rewards are really awesome. You know exactly how many attacks he's going to do because his AI deck never gets reshuffled uh, and... If you have a rawhide headband, you can kind of see what's going to come up next and plan accordingly. So slow and steady, play it smart, uh, tends to be the best strategy here from what I've seen. Uh, unless you've got something else to interject to that or a different strategy. No, I think you've pretty much nailed most of the points I was going to touch on. It. Uh, you're going in against the hand, you want good evasion, you want shields, as many as possible is great. Um, and you're there's no reason to attack him. You literally could just put all of your weapons aside apart from shields and just not bother bringing them along unless you've got somebody who really wants to perform their weapon mastery, you know, get their, get an important tick on a one. And then in which case you do it as late as possible in the fight because you don't want to open a lens on the very first round. You want to open it just before applause turns up. Absolutely. And again, uh, it is to note we want to go into this fight knowing exactly who's got the most of each aura and white auras and stuff like that, just to make sure uh, we can plan accordingly when the certain cards come up that target specific auras. Yes, indeed. Right. So we shall move on to the hit location deck. Now, the hand actually has a very small hit location deck compared to many of the monsters, uh, but uh, it's about on par with a lot of the nemesis monsters, if I remember correctly. It does feel very small when you're uh, when you're dealing with him, but possibly that's because you never see very many cards from it. In fact, I imagine going through these uh, is going to be a new experience, or at least one that you haven't had too often. Absolutely. I'm sure a lot of these are going to seem new to me as well, just because I don't remember the last time we actually tried to hit them. Uh, yes, indeed. So, Matt, do you have access to the hit location cards there? Uh, I do. I have them up in front of me now. That's great. So if you don't mind, we'll sort of alternate back and forth. I'll give you the title and you can read that one. We're going to go kind of alphabetically, but not exactly. Um, so we're going to start with um, the exotic fur collar. Uh, now, this is a red lens location, which means that if the red lens is open, it has additional effects. In this case, um, it becomes a first strike location, which means you have to resolve it first. The static ability of this is, is a minus four to wound this location. The hand turns to face directly away from the attacker and crosses its arms. The attacker's heart is frozen in terror and they must spend one survival or cancel their attack. So again, a little bit of that, that power shown there. And the, your survivors seem to be a little bit more affected by how powerful the hand is than maybe the players are. Um, on a wound, the monster staggers on purpose, again, theatrics, cancel all reactions for the rest of his attack, ignore all lens effects, and instead flip all lenses to closed. So this is actually quite a nice little location to hit. I it's love the way that that's, uh, I love the way that's worded, just because it's it's not he stumbles or staggers and you feel good about hitting him. It's he staggers on purpose. So you're just like, what am I even doing to this guy? Yeah, when you look at how this plays out, you you you, you strike him. You're almost going to hit him in his collar. So he turns around, and you have this moment of like fear of like, what what 
why has he turned around? How's he turned around so quickly right while I'm about to hit him? And then you push through to attack and he and then he just like goes, Oh, oh you got me. Oh oh no. Oh I'm oh you hurt me. You know, it's like it's quite um it's quite a nice piece of flavour and that's one of the things why I I say I'd love to see a little bit more of a reason to attack the hand because a big part of his character is tied up in these hit location cards. Um so Matt, you can have the exotic silk pantaloons. Oh why thank you. That's so sweet of you. So the exotic silk pantaloons is again another red lens location. Uh, if the red lens is open, he's going to do a first strike. So again, this is going to get resolved first. Uh, the reflex on this card is perform ghost step targeting the attacker. If the attacker is wearing any gear, uh, heavy gear in their gear grid, they're knocked down. So basically, uh, you're going to get knocked down if you have anything heavy, and he's going to do a brain damage to you as a reflex. But there is a crit location on this card. And if you crit it, ignore all closed lens effects and instead flip a lens card of your choice. A piece of armor breaks loose, gain one broken lantern basic resource. So this is a beautiful crit location if you can do if you could manage it. Yeah, there's actually quite a few like this if you crit that you'll get resources from. Also, this is a nice reference back to the Kingsman because it's again you get punished for wearing heavy gear when attacking him, which the same thing happens against the Kingsman. And it's him using his uh, agility against you. Yes, indeed. Um, about, I mean, it is worth sort of like, ignore all closed lens effects. That effectively uh, means you get to flip whichever lens you want to, um, which is kind of not bad to crit on because flipping the red lens open tends to be worse than flipping the blue or the green. Um, although, you know, like the green, I think it's. I think the blue is the least punishing of the three to flip, so it's it's not bad. Gaining a broken lantern basic resource is something. I kind of like if I sound a bit kind of like when I'm talking about this, it's just because it's hard to get super enthusiastic about these hit locations as cool as they are, because generally you're not going to see them and you're not going to hit them, which is a real shame. Absolutely, it's like the uh, since it punishes you for you know killing him or not necessarily killing him, but bothering him not taking all of his hits uh, it, it punishes you so it basically forces you to ignore these and it's really a pity because these are designed really nicely and thematically yeah. they're they're very nice absolutely right uh next of all we've got the exotic rib plate which is a green location um so with a green lens open this becomes super dense which does have some relevance because by this time within the core campaign you're probably using a zambato uh, if you're not, you should be. So sort that out. Um, I had a wonderful discussion with a guy on Reddit just recently who uh, just wouldn't accept the grand weapons were any good at all. I actually like, saw that. Just straight up, just hated them. Yeah, I, I ended up having to walk away from it because I was getting so like it felt like there was no debate at all. It wasn't a discussion. Like my point wasn't that axes are bad. My point was that axes are good late game, so you don't prioritize getting them early on. I mean, I love axe mastery, um, but. You know, grand weapon master, grand weapon specialization's insane. Anyway, <laughs> that's a bit of a, an aside, and I probably shouldn't rant too much about things like that. I do, like you know, I do. I, I just like felt a little disappointed that I, I was like, I accept and I see your point, but he just wanted to trample all over mine and ignore it. Um, but other uh, other readers did pick up on that, and and actually a, a couple of them commented saying that they felt I was right that grand weapons were very very good. So you know. I didn't feel like a complete, you know, ass. <laughs> okay, um, let's get on with this rib plate rather than talking about things like that. 
Uh, on a failure, uh, this all survives feel a sharp pain as their bones in their toes fuse together. They suffer minus one permanent movement and are knocked down. Place the monster in the center of the showdown board. Flip all lenses to closed. On a crit, a chunk of rib plate comes free and gain one iron strange resource. So, I mean, that's huge getting a piece of iron from this. But the price of failure is massive. Um, I, I don't know how often you guys experience minus one movement, but um, we had just yesterday one... Um, uh, Tom got hit with a minus one move token on his survivor, and he was struggling for the whole fight against the level three Gorm. So, I, I know having minus one movement on all four of your guys seems really like quite severe. I'm probably a bad person to ask that question to, just because I usually play as the range character. So I'm just like, yeah, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah, well, I'm trying to convince Josh to not allow the Flower Knight into the next campaign that you guys play. I would, that's good, though, because then that would force me to go and find the Sunstalker bow, and I know you'd be pleased about that as well. And the arc bow is very good as well, actually. Very don't true. forget, we did discuss I'd it. Al- <laughs> that's true. Uh, I would also like to note, though, I, don't, I forgot if you said it or not, but if the green lens is open, it adds plus four toughness to a wound in this location. No, I didn't. I did forget. I went off on a little tangent mini ramp, and I apologize. It happens. You can have the exotic bone bracer. Oh, how kind of you. So the Exotic Bone Bracer is another one of the Green Lens cards that adds super dense and plus four toughness if the Green Lens is open. Uh, The failure here is perform Ghost Step targeting the attacker. The monster stops to hit with a single hand and shoves the attacker away. They suffer three brain damage and knock back seven. Uh, And she's basically going to jump around you and then push you in the back and you're going to stumble away. Uh, however, if you crit it, ignore all closed lens effects and instead flip a lens card of your choice. A piece of armor breaks loose, gain one broken lantern basic resource. So that is the same crit as the exotic silk pantaloons. Yes, it is. Um, it's kind of interesting that when you break pieces off him, you get broken lanterns because there's not really any lanterns on the model. I suspect this is more of a game thing that actually what you're getting is scrap and there's no resource card, basic resource card for scrap. But it's kind of funny to think that you smack him and his armor breaks off and, oh, look, he's made of lanterns. He is just one singular lantern. That's what he is. He's the light that shines in the darkness. How beautiful. Okay, uh, next of all, we have the exotic silk cape. So this one, if the hand has all three eyes open, red, blue, and green, it sees too much and goes momentarily blind. Flip all the lenses to closed, otherwise cancel this hit and perform a basic action targeting the attacker. On a wound, the hand reacts by staggering, gaining minus four toughness, and cancelling all reactions until the end of the turn. And on a crit, you apply the effects of the wound reaction on this location, and the hand gets a minus on speed locations. So this one, it's a little unusual compared to uh, many of the... Um... Oh, sorry, chat distracted me there. He's a lantern that's burned long enough, he's gained sentience. You know what, uh, the RX? I would love to see a monster that's a sentient lantern. Like, actually just a sentient floating lantern. And I would like to point out for everyone uh, listening on the podcast, we are currently live on Twitch, uh, recording live. So we have the chat up, and they're going to be throwing random questions and comments at us. So if you have any, if we have any interaction with that, uh, the chat, that's what we're referring to. Uh, Fen, isn't the uh, floating lantern basically the Watcher? Yeah, I guess, but he's not cool. Right now. Ever. He's not cool. Maybe be better he's just 1. a ghost. He's, he's a floating hobo. We'll talk about him next time. Um, but yeah, all right. He's got some lantern evolved things. But I just, I was thinking about just a big giant rotating lantern, like the um, the head from that Sean Connery movie. Zardo? Is it called Zardo? 
Oh, you mean the one where the famous red bikini that he wears? Yes, Zardoz, yes. Zardoz, that wonderful... Uh, it's actually a very good film if you haven't seen it. Um, but yes. Uh, so anyway, let's get back to the exotic skilt cape as I seem to be just getting sidetracked a lot. Um, interestingly, this is one of those few locations where you get the wound location as uh, wound effect as well as the crit all at once. So this is part of the design where... It seems like fighting the hand is supposed to be this interesting battle where the lenses flip open and then you try and flip them closed and get advantages against him because having all the lenses open is a bit too overwhelming for the hand because he has to limit his power and control it by using you know his different lenses to how it's, how he sees the world. So you know this feeds into this whole desire I have of wanting to see something different for. A legendary hand. He could have the same hit location deck. I'd be perfectly happy with that. I'd just like to see something new for his AI and trait cards. Perhaps that's something that the community could do. I have a question. Is there any lore behind his his three eyes? Like what that is? Well, it's if you look at the impossible eyes picture, he appears. It's not that he's got three eyes. He's got uh, three lenses within his eye, and each one's a different color. So maybe it's how he filters to see the world. It may have some link to do with the, you know, the dream realm where the um, saviors come from, or sorry, spend their time in occasionally. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think I've seen any specific law reason for it. But uh, it, apart, from, you know, apart from speculation, that and obviously it's the only reason you get those colored tokens with the core game. Um, question: um, Isn't it the hand that can see through all the Kingsmen? Ooh. I'd have to go back and read the Kingsman showdown text. I think that's what we discussed. I think it's the the hand that sees through all the through all the Kingsman. Hmm, maybe, um, Matt. Uh, you uh, while while I have a quick look to check this, um, you can deal with the erotic fur girdle. I'm sorry, the erotic fur girdle. <laughs> misheard. I said exotic fur girdle. I don't. I don't know if that's what you said, Fen. Uh, but we you're have... projecting. <laughs> so we have the exotic fur girdle, which is amusing that he's wearing a girdle in and of itself. Uh, but if the hand has the red, blue, and green lenses open, it sees too much and goes momentarily blind. Flip all lenses to closed. Otherwise, cancel this hit and perform a basic action targeting the attacker. Uh, if you do manage to wound it, the hand staggers, gaining minus four toughness and canceling all reactions until the end of the turn. So it's a very nice wound reaction there. It's the same as the silk cape. Uh, and then we have the crit being the hand is impressed. All survivors gain plus one survival and the monster gains a minus one damage token. So the fur girdle and the exotic cape, uh, the silk cape, uh, both have really nice, like they're very nice to you, but only if he has all of his lenses open. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, Josh did remember correctly from the previous podcast, uh, the, um, text flavor text with the resin hand that was in the kingdom death store does indeed state the hand of the king's highest ranking guard they see through the eyes of very kings when the patrols the king's territory the hands are very are highly intelligent and master swordsmen so probably the lenses are involved in some fashion there and that's where we were speculating how many hand there actually are that's really interesting so that adds another layer to all of this yes yeah, like an onion or an ogre or a parfait or an ogre Sure, we'll go with that. Good, good. Shrek is life. 
Okay, uh, there we, now we've got the exotic poet's blouse. Oh, isn't that lovely? Um, on a blue lens, open, the hand perfectly predicts this attack and cancel this hit. So uh, that kind of fits into the whole... The blue sort of lenses seem to be quite sort of involved around speed and, and movement and things like that and a little bit of brain-related stuff. Um, so, yeah, this is links to that. Um, it doesn't have any reactions, but it does have an incredible crit location. Uh, you gain one survival. You add one extra token to Impossible Eyes, so this will deal two, effectively making it like you hit it with Devastating One, but it will stack with Devastating One. Um, ignore all lens effects and flip all lenses to closed. The attacker may roll 1d10 and add their understanding to the result. If the result is 15+, plus, the survivor realizes they are being toyed with, and the attacker gains plus one evasion and accuracy tokens. So this one specifically spells out to you that he's just messing around with you. This is one of the ones that really says, "Yeah, he is. Uh, he is. He's messing with you. Yeah, he's. Um, he's. He's pulling his punches. He's. He's throttled his own power. Uh, you can have the gilded crown, Matt. Well, thank you. You're crowning me. That's very nice of you. Uh, but we have a red lens on this one, so this makes it a first strike card. Uh, then we have a reflex, which is perform ghost step, targeting the attacker." The attacker must spend three survival or face a perfect counterpunch and suffer five damage to a random hit location, bash, and gain minus one speed token. That's it's pretty nasty, the minus one speed token there, uh, depending on which weapons you're playing with. And then if you crit the monster, the attacker may spend three survival to impress the hand. If they do, they're knocked down, heal any broken permanent injuries, and gain a plus one permanent speed. Fen, how do you feel about critting the monster at this location? It's not bad, you know. I'm, I've seen better crit locations in my time, but this one's, you know, you know I, I wouldn't mind this. Would you spend the survival to gain the speed just because of the healing of the broken injuries? If I had the broken injuries, I certainly would spend the speed. Um, one of the things about having too much speed... Uh, is you can always use a slow weapon to limit it or something like digging claws, you know, a weapon with just naturally one speed. So having lots of speed tokens isn't a big problem, uh, in my opinion. Lots, sorry, lots of speed permanently isn't a big problem. Um, if I didn't have any broken permanent injuries, I would think about whether I did it or not. It would depend on the role the survivors got and what gear I'm going to give them. Because I don't like to go above two, maybe three speed on attacks if I can avoid it. Absolutely. And in all honesty, it's really not that terrible of an attack. It's just the fact that you have to burn three survival uh, if you don't crit the monster to dodge taking five damage, which is interesting that it's a static five damage and not scalable with the monster level. Yeah, yeah, it is actually interesting that it doesn't scale at all. Um, yeah, well, uh, I've got the Gilded Curace here. Uh, this is a first strike location as well. So same um, yeah, with red lenses, a first strike location, I should say. Same as the Gilded Crown. Uh, very straightforward. He reflexes by performing ghost step, uh, targeting the attacker. If the attacker has a grand weapon, the monster uses its weight against them. They must spend three survival or suffer the broken arm sphere injury. Again, this is one of these locations I like because it refers to a weapon. So it makes you think a little bit more about what you're going to be doing and what you're going to be attacking with an extra layer of strategy on your setup and tactics. Also, it's a cool bit of flavor that uh, he you know, literally breaks your arm with your own weapon. Um, right, Matt, I'm going to give you the Gilded Sabaton. Can you remember what they are? Oh, those are the pointy shoe coverings, correct? Yes, they are. Pointy shoe coverings. Sabatons for everyone. 
I'm never going to forget that for the rest of my life. Uh, it's and a good I'm, question for a trivia, you know, trivia quiz. really is, and I love the fact that they're gilded, of course. Uh, these are a super dense location if the green lens is open, and he's going to gain plus four toughness as well if the green lens is open. And this has a wound reaction, which is, in a moment of desperation, you strike at the monster's feet. Amazingly, it manages to keep its balance. The observation gives you some insight, gain plus one evasion and plus one accuracy tokens. It's actually a very kind wound reaction for this monster. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think like he's not punishing a lot of the time when you attack him. It's kind of the lens is causing to be offensively punishing. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a fun one. This one, you know, again, a little kind of tip, uh, t- little hint, little little bit of information about like, hang on a minute, why is he still on his feet? Nothing else would have been. Hang on, I've dropped my hit location deck. Oh no, hit location, deck down. That and I rolled my chair across it. In the meantime, I will take on the next one then, which I believe would be the Gilded Spalder. And I'm not exactly sure what that is. Uh, What is a Spalder, Fen? Oh, um, sorry, it's a, uh, ooh, it's on the shoulders, a Spalder. It's like a pauldron, if I remember correctly. Um, I'm going to Wikipedia it, give me a moment. And while he's Wikipediaing it, uh, it is a blue lens location. So if the blue lens is open, the hand perfectly predicts the attack, cancel the hit. So not even a chance to do anything there. And it has a wound reaction of the hand seems irritated by the force of your blow and looms over you. The attacker suffers three brain damage and gains one survival. Then if you crit the monster, the attacker damages the monster's ornate armor and gains plus one survival. Add one extra token to impossible eyes. Ignore all lens effects and instead flip all lenses to closed. So this is a very nice one that allows you to close all the lenses with the crit location. But also I'd like to point out, uh, it's another one that gives the flavor of just how he's toying with you in that he's irritated by the force of your blow. Like that mosquito bite felt funny. Yeah, it's a bit of an equivalent to the um, exotic poet's blouse, this one. Um, yes, a spolder is a uh, piece of armor in a harness. Typically, they're either a single steel or iron covering the shoulder with bands covered, uh, joined by s- straps of leather or rivets. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's effectively on the shoulder. They're a quite nice-looking piece of kit, actually, sort of ridged. Um, I don't have my hand model with me right now to have a look to see whether it's actually depicted on the model. But, uh, I imagine it is. They're usually very good. I mean, he does have these. Oh, there he is. Um, Yes, yes, he does have spoilers. Yeah, I can see them. Very nice. Uh, Okay, Uh, I've got here the Gilded Face Visor, which is the last of the Gilded locations we'll be looking at right now, Matt. um, There's one left that we'll talk about just before the trap. Um, This one is the... The hand has all three of its... um, uh, eyes open, red, blue, and green. It sees too much because momentarily blind. You flip all lenses to close. Otherwise, you cancel this hit and perform basic action targeting the attacker. So this is one of those situations where you can't attack him uh, unless all of his eyes are o- uh, open, which is kind of cool and interesting. If you wound him, he staggers, gaining minus four toughness, cancel all reactions until the end of the turn. On a critical wound, again, you get to apply the effects of the wound reaction on this location, but this time the hand gains a minus one accuracy token. So that this is, I think, the hints of the one weakness that the hand has is that when all three of his eyes are open, he's a bit prone to information overload and actually not in as in control as he is normally. I have a question. If all reactions are cancelled, does that mean he doesn't open up any more eyes on that turn? 
Well, the reactions are separate from that. No, I think it just means the reactions physically on the hit location cards versus the when you damage the monster, he opens the lenses. Is everyone there? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just rereading the lens cards. It says when you do a wound, you flip the card over. So it should be regardless of if it says canceling all reactions, right? That's what I would assume. That's what Ross says. All right, so that's the gilded face visor. Uh, what do we have next? Uh, the handed lantern? I don't believe we covered that one yet, correct? Correct. So the handed lantern is another blue lens hit location. Uh, the hand perfectly predicts the attack, cancel this hit. And if you crit, there's actually no reaction on this, but if you crit the monster, the attack shatters the handed lantern hanging from the monster's belt and gains plus one, or the attacker uh, shatters the handed lantern hanging from the monster's belt and gains plus one survival. Ignore all lens effects and instead flip all lenses closed. Then he's going to actually receive a persistent injury, and I believe this is his only persistent injury location in all of his hit locations, and that is Broken Lantern. Survivors no longer suffer brain damage from Ghost Step. Uh, so all of a sudden, it kind of takes a little bit of the annoyance out of Ghost Step, uh, eliminating the stacking of the brain damage going back and forth. Can you hear me? Yes, now we can hear you. Yeah, I, uh, my wireless disconnected for a moment there. So I don't know what time I dropped out. Uh, I just took over the Handed Lantern. Uh, I think that's just about it. Uh, then we have the Shadow Fabric Gloves. Do uh, you want to take that one, Fen? Uh, yeah, I would like to just quickly comment on the Handed Lantern that this suggests... Um, that it is a, it's part of his abilities. Um, it ha, in fact, it's causing the brain damage from the ghost step. So it's kind of interesting that uh, it's not necessarily all innate powers. Perhaps some of his um, abilities are from artifacts that he's carrying. Okay, so the Shadow Fabric Gloves are a green location. So they go super dense. Um, and if you have the green eye open and plus four toughness to wound this location as well. On a failure, he will parry the hit, redirecting the strike, and you select a survive the win two spaces the monster. They suffer five damage, knockback seven, and bash. So literally, he takes your blow and steers it into somebody else, including possibly yourself. On a crit, you ignore all closed lens effects and instead flip a lens card of your choice, and a piece of armor breaks loose, and you get another broken lantern. That's not terrible, I guess, right? No, no, it's not. It's it's fine. Um, I mean, it's all sort of very hypothetical talking about these because attacking them is not something we really, you know, want to uh, want to do very much at all. I, I think I've, every streamer I've ever seen who's attacked the hand has had it turn out not great. Um, but yeah, um, so I think we got now the spine saber sheath. If you'd like to take that one, Matt. Uh, let me. I don't see that one actually. It's the impervious location. Ah, okay, yeah, I got it. So it's the impervious location, Spine Saber Sheath. That's a tongue twister right there. Say that five times fast. Uh, but it is a reflex of you manage to slip past the hand's defenses, but connect with its indestructible sheath, which only enrages the monster. The, target, eh, the attacker gains the priority target token and plus one courage. So you've just managed to piss him off by scraping his sword, sword sheath. Yeah, well, you know, you shouldn't really go touching another man's sword sheath. You know. Words to live life by, for sure. Absolutely. Don't cross the streams. Uh, it's not too much more to say about that one. It's just a nice little bit of flavor, um, a little bit of uh, gaining courage. Having the priority target token can be bad in a fight, but, I mean, I don't think I'd be poking this location if I saw it. Um, you know, you're not. it's impervious. You're not going to get a weapon tick from it. 
it's uh it's just fun fun flavor which a lot of these are but this next one which is the last one before we get to the traps you get to talk about the trap matt how about that um yeah is 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 the gilded cod piece um so this is a blue location, and so if his blue eye is open, then he perfectly predicts the attack and he cancels the hit, because if his blue eye op- is open, he knows exactly where his junk is at all times. Um, now, there's no other reaction on this, but if you critically hit, the hand is knocked down and he gains a plus one damage token. If the hand suffers a wound before it stands up, you add 20 tokens to impossible eyes, which effectively completes impossible eyes and flips it over to the respect side. The attacker may roll 1d10 and add their understanding to the result. If the result is a 15+, plus, they realize the monster is only feigning fury. Move the plus 1 damage token the monster gained. So this is how I beat the hand the first time I ever encountered him. I cat's died, saw that, went for it, critted it, knocked him down, hit him again because he was knocked down, 3 plus to hit, um, and then... Uh, and wounded him because he was only the level one hand and uh, then hit him a second time and got the respect. So uh, <laughs> he respects survivors who knock him over, hit him in the junk, you know, and then take a hit from his sword. But, yeah, it's a very odd way to give respect to people. But uh, just to note, this is actually how it went the first time we fought him on stream. Uh, we thought uh, this card actually came up and I believe Twitch hit and crit it. But we couldn't get the second wound in, and we all wound up dying to the other effects on the different cards, if I remember correctly. Right, Josh? Oh, yep. High risk, high reward. So we were actually playing very reserved, and Twitch was going around and smacking it and getting all kinds of terrible things happening. But uh, when this came up and they hit it, Josh and I were like, oh, we got to do this now. And it, it just didn't end well. Yeah, it's a nice one. And this this was like, it's strange that my introduction to the hand was I read this. And I went, okay, so he's faking. He gets hit in the cod piece, and he's actually not really bothered by it at all. He's pretending to be bothered by it. What's going on here? And it's sort of like a big kind of moment of, ooh, okay, so there's a, there's a lot more going on in this world than, than we're seeing. It was a nice, it was a big eye-opener immediately, you know, pun not intended. So a slight two-second spoiler was when we did this, the next card we drew to do that second wound was the trap card. That, that's what happened. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Uh, speaking of which, Matt, would you like to take the trap card? Absolutely. So the trap card for him is full speed, and that is perform a basic action targeting all survivors one at a time, starting with the survivor that drew this card. Modify each basic action depending on which lenses are open. So if the red lens is open, the attack profile gains plus one damage. If the blue lens is open, the attack profile gains plus one speed. And if the green lens is open, suffer minus one to severe injury rolls. So all in all, those are pretty tame compared to what we've seen uh, with how different attacks get affected with lenses being open. But again, this is attacking everyone. And then finally, it says a survivor with the king step, uh, that's the fighting art, has a startling realization. They may spend one survival to gain plus six evasion until this trap is resolved. And I'm guessing that realization is that he's faking and they can kind of see where he's going with this. Yeah, and just to make note, this card does not say all survivors are doomed. So you can actually dodge and do everything else. Yes, correct. This is one of the few uh, trap cards that actually does not specify doomed on the survivors. So it does help a little bit with dealing with him. But again, this is mean just because it one by one attacks everyone. And uh, yeah, it's never good. 
I like the um, the little link with the king's death that it has, which is nice, sort of tying the two monsters together further. Absolutely, it adds another little bit of depth and shows that they're uh, a little more closely related than you think at first. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, the um, this trap was the cause of a great deal of upset. Um, about back in October. Where I was playing with some of my uh, one of the, my groups of friends, the guys who play on Sunday, and we had basically we'd done it. We got through, and the applause was the next card to come up. And I was like, okay, well, we don't need to do anything here. We can sit tight. Um, we're fine, you know. Um, and so everybody hunkered down um, and got themselves nice and safe. Demo ducked down behind a pillar. I I put up my block and got ready. And then Chris, who was the last one to act, decided to go punch the hand uh, because he wanted to, you know. And uh, he hit the trap, which was the second card down, and the um, uh, the hand pummeled two people to death, including Demo, who'd done nothing wrong or all fight except you know try not to get too badly damaged. And that was Demo's sixth survivor he lost. So uh, there was some kind of badly hurt feelings there. Um, it was pretty funny in hindsight, but uh, I, I guess I had a bit of an indicator of, of what Chris was going to be like uh, to play with. I mean, Chris is a great bloke, but my God, did he uh, did he take risks while playing Kingdom Death? He really did. So he plays like Twitch. Yeah, yeah. He he uh, he got killed by the Phoenix Feather when it first turned up, and that kind of set the tone for everything going on for him. Um, yeah, he he uh, he did you know he did feel that he got killed by random stuff a lot more than he should have. Um, and he did roll badly, and but also it was whenever there was a roll that had a chance of killing somebody, he would go, oh, "I'll volunteer with my survivor." And we were like, "But we've got these rubbish guys in the settlement that aren't doing anything; they could roll instead." But he didn't want to, you, you know, he wanted to be the one to uh, to take it on the chin. He wanted to be the martyr for the group. I don't know. He he he, I, he got some kind of um, you know perverse pleasure out of uh, out of having the bad stuff happen to him. Yeah, well, you know, the only sad thing is, of course, it was uh, poor Demo's character died and he was incredibly useful and good. And um, yeah, I think that was the start of when that Sunday campaign started to collapse because we were playing People of the Stars and your uh, your survivors are very important. You can't just, you know, get to the end and then beat the last monster as you can do in uh, People of the Lantern. Yeah. Well, um, I guess it's time to look at rewards for the hand if you can call it the rewards true true so the rewards is the hand hesitates before leaving roll 1d10 and consult the table below the group gains any listed resource or gears uh so one through four the hand vanishes the group finds one broken lantern basic resource and one skull basic resource suffer minus one population so i wonder what happens comes from Hmm. Uh, yes It's truly a mystery for the ages. That's almost as impressive as what the Lion Knight does, where uh, the Lion Knight skin is it Lion Knight skins someone and hands them their own skull to them, but then doesn't kill them because they forgot to put their text on the card. Yeah, it's, I think that's much funnier though. There's just a skinless or a skullless survivor walking around, just like a soft spot in the head. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, what happens on a five to eight? Five through eight. The hand is a sore loser and punts a broken lantern. One random survivor suffers a severe head injury, add one scrap to the settlement storage. And I would like to add, I think it was the first time we fought the hand. It was my survivor that 
got randomly picked because we rolled like a six and I died because of the severe head injury. I was so upset. Was this on stream or was this your first campaign? No, this was our first campaign. I believe the first time we quote unquote beat the hand and I was not a happy camper that day. Yeah, you were you were salty like normal. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. You uh, took it with a... usual good grace. Exactly. Uh, and then on a 9+, plus, the hand bows graciously and vanishes, leaving a package carefully wrapped in one leather strange resource. Inside is one skull and five basic resources, minus one population. I wonder where that skull comes from. Well, who knows? And also, there's one more thing if you have sword mastery when you beat a level 3-plus hand. Which is the hand takes a moment to share some fighting techniques. Roll 1d10 for each survivor. That's all of the survivors. On a 6+, plus, the survivor gains the Swordsman's Promise secret fighting art. Woo. Yeah, it's not stellar. Yeah, it's something. Um, you know, and it's kind of interesting, because uh, there is one thing that's sort of worth discussing, because we've looked at all three of the core Nemesis monsters, um, and yet at some point during each campaign, you've got to face a level 3, um, and you get your choice, don't you, in um, People of the uh, the Lantern? Do you get a choice? Yeah, you get a choice. Yeah, so um, which one of the three would you pick at level three? The hand. Just tank through him. You reckon you could st- you've, you've managed to tank through even with him the additional speed and damage? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because I had a stupid tank. Oh, I Ooh. believe when we fought the level three hand, we, uh, we had two tanks. I think we had one green savior and then that one really awesome tank we were referring to before, and they kind of uh, tag-teamed it. So it offset his attacks just a little bit we had them set up with the same amount of uh affinities so they had the same auras and whatnot right right yeah i just I what you mean um what about though in general terms if you don't have ridiculously obscene survivors definitely not the butcher i don't want to fight him i mean the butcher is the first one you would pick if you don't know what a level three butcher is exactly but now that i know i'm definitely not picking that and what about kingsman that I... might be the choice but i think that just because we've got so much experience with the hand and like our gear and survivor builds technically uh tend to uh go in the direction of tanks and that kind of build that uh, we'd probably wind up defaulting to the hand instead still okay that's fair enough yeah that that does seem to fit with what i think a lot of people would agree that of the three the preference would be i imagine for people to fight the level three butcher but being invincible is a bit too much of an issue really yeah and if you're all bad Mm. yeah so um i mean there we are when it comes to the hand there's not that much to talk about in detail with the strategy because we've got a monster that you should have two ways of fighting but it turns out there's only really one way that is worth doing because the other way is incredibly punishing and not worth the effort um, in fact, I kind of feel like maybe the rewards should have been flipped the other way around, and applause should happen if you beat the hand by fighting it, and respect should happen if you sit there and tank for the whole thing and do what he says. Because, I mean, respect is nowhere near as good as applause for a reward. Yeah. Um, real quick, what is the defeat condition? Uh, so the defeat condition is, if the settlement has the guidepost innovation, the hand leaves in peace. Otherwise, he slaughters all retired survivors in the settlement, which... How often do we have retired survivors? I've got three in my current settlement, thanks to the Lion Knight and murder. 
Josh, have we actually had anyone retire that we haven't managed to bring back in some way, shape, or form? Not that I know of. Fen, you care for your elderly too well. Um, well, one of them retired after a failed encounter with the Lion Knight and just went, I'm fed up, I'm not going to leave anymore. Um, and then another one reached nat- the natural end because the person playing him wasn't paying attention, then went out with uh, as a lucky elder and then ticked the last box. Which is like whoops, and then the last one was happened Thursday where um, we had a murder of our, uh, which actually turned out to be like the murder we were all waiting for. Which, uh, as I mentioned in one of my previous, one of the previous podcasts, we've got a chap who's been causing. He's a bit, uh, he, he's he's a f- nice guy, and I do like him, but sometimes when he plays, he's he's very selfish. So we've all been rooting for murders to turn up because his survivors had the highest um, hunt XP. So. Uh, it did. It turned up, and his survivor got murdered. Um, and uh, Tom's survivor was the one who did it, and then she retired as a consequence of the hunt XP she gained. So, yeah, it was uh, much rejoicing and fun until we realised that Tom now had two retired survivors out of three retired ones. Um, and we can only get one hour's ring, which is annoying. All right, so is there anything else you guys wanted to touch on with the hand, or anything else that we needed to talk about still? I think I've pretty much done. I think we've gone through everything. Uh, basically, sit and tank do what he says enjoy the applause i agree all right so did you guys want to talk about uh the blacksmith location yeah yeah we shall go through blacksmith absolutely um right who was who would like to take the lead on the blacksmith well i don't have anything open right now so it's gonna have to be one of you two fine gentlemen i'll actually try to get through this then you might need to jump in every now and then absolutely no problem if you need me just call otherwise i'll be asleep i'm kidding all right, so I'm just going to go over the armor set real quick. Um, ben, if you grab the... Uh, I don't remember the armor set bonus for this, so if you grab that real quick. So you oh, can yep, sure. I'll do the armor set bonus. Um, give me one moment. So the lantern armor set is... All the locations give you five armor. They're all um, metal and heavy. Um, the gauntlets have a left green, and it has a puzzle of left green affinity, plus your accuracy with club weapons. So you're going to see clubs work pretty well with the... Uh, Lantern armor. Uh, next up is the lantern mail. It just has a right green affinity. Nothing else special on that. For the waist, the lantern greaves um, have a right and left uh, red affinity and an up blue. And it has three puzzles for all three of them. You get plus two movement. The lantern helm uh, has a down blue and has earplugs, uh, the affinity down blue puzzle. Earplugs, you are deaf, minus one accuracy, which is actually kind of nice for some things, but you cannot be encouraged. And the last piece is the chest piece, which has uh, right and left green affinities, up and down blue affinities, and all of them are puzzled. When you depart, add three armor to all hit locations with metal armor, so your armor set goes up to an eight if you have a full armor set. Uh, But it does give you minus two movement always. So if you get the boots of that, you still stay at five movement, you get eight armor. And then what's the armor set bonus, Fen? Yep, so the armor set bonus is you feel invincible. Skip your role on the overwhelming darkness story event. The extra weight is great leverage. All clubs in your gear grid gain sharp. Um, it's so, uh, this this is one of the armor sets I think is quite nicely designed in many ways. Um, you've got a few options with how to use it. I like the fact that you can put the helmet on if you want to, uh, to gain the um, earplugs effect, but you, you can take it off. You know, that's not required. I um, I also quite like the layout of this, which effectively it sits in a cross. Um, although it, sometimes it can be a little awkward to get the lantern greaves active and you really need to get them active because three movement is is a nightmare. Um, 
I think really like part of the um the, the set bonus technically is the lantern curace ability as well for the extra armor. And it feels like certainly a part of the set bonus. Yeah. But this whole yeah, this whole armor I it, it's sort of it's it's got immense amount of armor. You know, we're talking eighty in every location when it's set up correctly. Um and maybe you know, the beacon shield or scrap shield, that's like, you know, nine or ten. I mentioned Scrap Shield because it actually fits onto the grid next to the Lantern Greaves quite well. So it's one of the few areas where you might consider a Scrap Shield, but you probably wouldn't. And we'll talk about that a bit later on. Um, but the main thing is this is like a this is the armor set you wear if you want to use clubs. Um, plus two accuracy with clubs and sharp on them actually makes the clubs in the Weapon Crafter quite good um, and late game. It's just... This is an expensive set to build. I mean, that's seven armor, uh, seven bone, five organ, and 16 leather for a full set. That's an investment and a half. Yeah, you've got to be uh, shooting for this one with a purpose when you're gathering all of your resources, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, so then we have, we've got the weapons. Um, so the first one uh, I'll deal take is the Lantern Sword. Uh, potentially, you can, through a settlement event, get this card quite early on. Uh, we had it in Lantern Year 2 in one of our campaigns, and it kind of highlighted how bad the Lantern Sword actually was, because uh, we had a, um, you know, a speed 3 weapon with 5 plus accuracy, 3 strength plus sharp, so that's a minimum 4 strength going up potentially to 13 strength. Pretty powerful, but it has early iron so whenever you roll a one on any of your attack dice every single hit gets cancelled and you end the attack uh, i mean that's horrifically bad because if i might remember correctly that's a 28 ish percent chance that any time you attack with the lantern sword you're just going to miss it's horrific with two dice it's a 19 percent chance so th- this is like Part of the the thing that makes the blacks a lot of the blacksmith gear quite questionable. Early iron is a, such a crippling drawback. One thing I would like to ask though is if you're playing with the expansions included, how does this stack up with the what is it the rainbow wing belt from the uh, dung beetle knight? Absolutely amazingly, it's if you're going to go um, with lantern gear and you have access to the dung beetle knight, you've really got to consider. Um, Building a rainbow belt, rainbow wing belt. Um, it's so much so that my uh, my survivors downstairs um, are actually built with um, lantern glaives on their dung beetle knight armor because it works so well. Uh, next of all, we've got the lantern dagger. If you'd like to take that one, Josh. All right. So lantern dagger. Um, this has that finesse keyword, which we still don't know what that means. Um, finesse. Finesse. Sorry. It, uh, it's got sharp early iron, and it's paired. It's a Two speed, seven plus accuracy, one strength with a left red affinity. So not anything special with the daggers. Like, the sharp's nice, but if you pair them, you're rolling four dice. Chance to roll one is high. And it's a seven plus to, for accuracy, which is I seem real, seems really high to me. Yeah, the accuracy is a little higher than I would have thought that would have been on that weapon. But I guess it's just because it's a two speed that you can pair up. Yeah, but uh, having four speed with early iron is very bad. Yeah, it seems like a accident waiting to happen. Yeah. Um, this is kind of, I think, to be brutally honest, at least in the core game, daggers are very poorly designed. They just kind of, there, there seems to be some aim in, in the way that, that 
Poots wanted to make daggers work, but it just doesn't seem to have paid off because uh, the scrap dagger's not very good either. Um, the bone daggers are not very good. And it's, the whole line is just kind of... Katars do what I imagined daggers were going to do in this game, which gives you higher chances of crits. Um, I mean, apart from the fact that daggers are good against the Kingsmen, there's just really no reason to be using them. And when this is your ultimate dagger, it's a bit of a letdown because, I mean, yeah, 7 plus accuracy, you don't want to be using rolling two dice to attack with that, but you can't be attacking with four dice. That's just even worse. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, I mean, there are some good news when you get we get to talk about the expansions. There are a couple of daggers that I do actually rate, so it's not all bad news for people who like daggers, but still. I feel I do... I. I kind of like the lantern sword and the lantern dagger. It's really going to come down to what happens when they get oxidized with the um, 1.5 changes, because they could potentially be interesting that you build them and they're a bit wonky and then you oxidize them and they become great. Because everyone loves rusty weapons. Yeah. On rusty venture. Um, Okay. So next we've got the lantern glaive. This is, um, this is actually an early iron weapon that I rate. Um, There's a few reasons for that. First of all, it has two speed, which means a 90% chance of missing, but its accuracy is a six plus, its strength is four plus sharp, so it hits really hard. And on top of that, it is actually a finesse weapon and a spear and an axe. So this is, you can basically get all the benefits of wielding an axe combined with all the benefits of wielding a spear. Um, my, uh, our current settlement actually has Spear Mastery and Axe Mastery and has both of them on the same survivor and she uses the Lantern Glaive with a rainbow belt and it's phenomenal. And it also has a down green affinity which is just great. That's quite hard to get affinity on many things. Yeah. So yeah, th- I like this weapon a lot. There are other weapons we're going to get to shortly that are fantastic. You can take the uh, the next two, Josh, because I'm sure you'll you'll enjoy that. Both of them. The uh, grand weapons or the shields? Yeah, the grand the grand weapons. All right. You can do the shields as well if you like. I'll do the ring whip at the end. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's do shields first. I want to leave the grand weapons for last because we have the special one. Uh, so let's okay. do the scrap shield. So it's a two speed, seven plus accuracy, three strength. You add one armor to hit all hit location and you get block one. as has a right red affinity. Um, this is a bone slash metal. So it actually works in people with the bone, which is, I guess, kind of a good thing if you want to play that. Uh but otherwise, yes. I know you said it a lot. It's very heavy. It's a lot of resources to make it, and it's not. It, the best. it is. When you compare what this does in comparison to the leather shield, which costs a third of the number of resources, uh, nearly, yes, yeah, slightly over a third. Um, it's just unbelievable how poor this is. And as you say, I think the only area that it looks interesting is in people of the bone, but. In People of the Bone, if you build a blacksmith, unless you've got a lot of black skulls, this is the only thing you're going to be building from there because you're not allowed – you have to build stuff with a bone keyword unless you build it with a black skull from the phoenix. So this is uh, this is such a niche item, and um, I'm actually – like I sat down with the guys and we discussed a bit on this, and um, this is one of the cards that I've ended up – we've actually house-ruled. Um, we made a very minor change to it. We made it block two instead of block one, so it kind of sits. It's it's better at blocking than the um, than the leather shield, but it's not as good as the beacon shield. And we found it kind of 
it's still not we're not super excited about it but sometimes now people will take it and put it in a build because it's less resource intensive than the beacon shield so i think the scrap shield it as it stands as written just doesn't have a place in the game at all it's too expensive for what it does leather shield is far more efficient beacon shield is just better i also feel that it shouldn't be part of the blacksmith that should be part of the scrap the uh weaponsmith right i think you're right yeah because that like I think that's the only place that has two of the same cards on it. Like, everything else is one of each. Not really, like, two different swords, yeah. two different this or that. Uh, thoughts crossed my mind before as well. I mean, for a starter, it's called the Scrap Shield. It's the only thing in the Blacksmith that doesn't use iron to make it. Um, yeah, and I don't think it would have been bad for it to be in the Weapon Crafter at all. And that yeah. would give you an early game shield so... if you didn't have Ammonia. and love yeah. it. yeah. Yeah, then it could probably exist as it, exactly as it is with the stats it's got. And it would have a place in the game, which is, yeah, you don't have ammonia, but you can go weapon crafter and you can get a shield quickly that's not bad for bashing with. Two, seven, uh, two, two speed, seven plus accuracy, three strength. So it's, it's not terrible at all. But, um, yeah, it just, as it stands where it is, the point in the game where it turns up, it's not good enough, really. All right, so since we, we bashed the uh, Scrap Shield a bunch, let's let's talk about Beacon Shield, which is probably one of the best items in the game. It's a 1-speed, 6-plus accuracy, 5-strength. It adds 2 armor to all hit locations and gives you block 2, which lets you ignore 2 hits the next time you are attacked. Yeah, this costs 2 iron, 3 leather, and 4 bone to make, and it's worth every single resource. It's, yeah, it's just an amazing defensive weapon, and it's the one good shield that you can actually get shield mastery easily with because it has actual some strength behind it yeah it's a great weapon to attack with actually it's it's absolutely fine for attacking you know one speed six plus accuracy five strength is very good um and uh as we've learned over time you can rush the uh, beacon shield and get it all done before lantern year 10 fairly reliably and uh no there's no early iron on this so uh you can roll once yeah yeah it's a great item and if you have some natural speed, this is where it's a little nice, so you can roll two dice instead of one. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's anything bad that can be said about the Beacon Shield. It even looks good. Yeah, I think he actually uses the Beacon Shield for some uh, art stuff um, on the side and stuff like that. It's one of the uh, icons he uses. Yeah, I did actually see the original 3D sculpt for this, and the um, the rings are uh, the, around the outside actually are full hoops as opposed to solid as they are on the cast now which uh it was really nice to see the way it's obviously intended um matt how do you feel about the beacon shield i mean you touched on it it is absolutely gorgeous looking it's functional like extremely functional for a shield i mean statistically speaking it's very similar to the zambato i mean ignoring the deadly and devastating uh but one speed six plus accuracy five strength instead of six strength so I like to compare them in that sense in that it's it's a solid weapon that's going to hit a lot. And I believe this is the weapon that we used to get Shield Mastery in our uh, offline campaign. Correct, Josh? Yeah. I think there's only one negative thing you can say about the Beacon Shield, and that is that it doesn't have any affinities. But, like, it's almost powerful enough that that doesn't matter too much. Like, I, been like I was reaching. No. <laughs> I was reaching for something. That it's, this is one of, I think, if not the best non- like green armor slash rare unique items in the entire game as a single item this is so much built into one thing it's masses of defense i mean what's that like two to all locations three with shield mastery and block two and it's perfectly good for attacking with it's like this this is the pinnacle of 
of the blacksmith location. It's a pinnacle of shields, and it's got to be a top 10 weapon. It has to be. Yeah. The only thing I w- would be cool to see if, if the lantern armor set, its bonus was for clubs and shields. I think that would be fun, because they're kind of both the same bashing kind of thing, but it's not yeah. needed. No, it's really not needed at all. Beacon Shield is so uh, it, it is fun to try and want to do more stuff with the Beacon Shield, but yeah, I think it's like it, it's so good. It's fantastic. I'm just waiting for the uh, Captain America um, Shield that we can toss at things. Oh yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, throwable <laughs> shield. Maybe that'll be in one of the. Maybe that'll be with the frog dog. Or maybe. Yeah. All right, you want to take the whip? Yeah, so going from the dizzying heights of the Beacon Shield, let's get right down into the Mariana Trench and deal with the Ring Whip which is a terrible item right at the bottom of the pile of a series of terrible weapons. Whips outside of the spidiculous whip really get the short end of the stick, and the ring whip just personifies this. Two speed, which is fine. Accuracy 5+, plus, which is great. Zero strength, which would be problematic, except uh, it has sharp, so it has between 1 and 10 strength. It's got reach 2, which is fine, but it has early iron. So again, this is just—it's just a horrible, horrible weapon. And in fact, like, it is worth noting if you have whip mastery, you get plus five strength. Um, but why are you going to be pushing for whip mastery? There is there's not good enough whips in the game. There's not enough encouragement to do it. We need expansions to improve upon whips to get us going there. What's the um, whip specialization? Oh, the specialization. Um, it is. Ooh, I know this one. Hang. On. Uh oh yes 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 you get to when you wound you can take the top card of the AI deck um as a wound instead of the top sorry top card of the discard pile instead of the top card of the AI deck yeah. so you get a bit more utility in your choices of how you filter out the wounds you can go I don't want the monster doing that next time we go round I'll get rid of it which works almost like a reverse way the rawhide headband works. So that is actually a good specialization. It's just attached onto a crappy weapon class. Yeah, I wish so the, I kind of have a... Oh, go ahead, Josh. I wish the whips just kind of had more kind of monster control kind of stuff like that, like setting yeah. priority token. It, it just, like, they don't need to do damage. It's more like, I'm just going to do funky things and control how the monster kind of reacts and does things. Because that's yeah, what yeah, the, the um, point is. Yeah, yeah, the... the, the the rawhide whip does that, but like the rawhide whip, you have to get to ammonia to make, and then you move on to the whip after that, and it's it's it, it just loses that ability. I can't remember it's the, in the weapon crafting the next whip, and it's just not not very good. Yeah, what were you saying, Matt? Uh, I had a question on like kind of what's the point of zero strength and then adding sharp to it when essentially it gives you a, the same effect. It's just uh, I don't know. It's weird because uh, yeah, the, sorry, the hunter's whips in the leather work and not the um, not the weapon crafter. Same tier. Yeah, the the, the hunter whip is um, two blue wind uh, joints up and right. So you have to uh, connect both of those affinities on a perfect hit. Discard one mood in place, so it gives you a bit of control. But as we've already talked about before, whisker harp does the job better. The weird thing is the hunter whip has three strengths. So yeah, the ring whip is incredibly unreliable. However, if I remember correctly, this was the whip. This is the oxidized item that Poots revealed, wasn't it? The whip. I think so. I don't remember what the card was though. Yeah, I'm. Um, I can't remember exactly where it is in the Kickstarter, so I probably wouldn't be able to find it in time. Um, but anyway, let's move on. I, I, I'm going to take a quick look to see if I can find it before we close out. But Josh, would you like to uh, take the uh, the last two then and send us home? Yeah. So next up is the uh, Dragon Slayer. 
Um, these are both pretty much uh, berserk references. Um, it's a melee weapon. It's frail, slow, sharp, devastating one. And that's early iron. It's only one speed, six plus accuracy, nine strength. Um, so it's a, and it's got sharp. So it's a bigger, stronger version of the Zombato. Um, Fen, do you have the resources on that? I do. It requires, you have to have paint uh, as an innovation. It requires five iron and three organs. So it's a little resource heavy and it's got frail, which is kind of the weird thing about it. Um, but it also has early iron too. Yeah, early, but you're only rolling one die. So 10% chance. It only matters if you get frenzied. Yeah, so it yeah it only matters if you get frenzy. If you roll one anyway, you you fail. So it doesn't matter. So you're not Very rolling fair. two dice. Um, so this is it's a really strong weapon, but uh, perfect slayer. I this, feel like there's something stronger coming. Yes, the perfect slayer is uh, you know this, but perfect. Uh, this is a little bit harder to get because you need to get the portacles key and then get the yeah, Josh. That's an understatement saying it's a little bit harder to get. Yes. And, uh, what the... are you talking about? I've had the portcullis key in the last three campaigns I've played. <laughs> and have you gotten to the gate? I have. In fact, I've we've we've neglected to make it on two of them because we just went, eh, we don't need it. <laughs> well, you're no fun, fan. And then what does that give you once you have the key and you get the other random hunt? So it's you get the key through a random hunt, and then you get our other yeah, random hunt. From the, you, you get the key. key. Yeah. Yeah, you get the key from the dying prospector, basically, who is it's a Warhammer Quest re- reference where in Warhammer Quest um, there was an event where a dying prospector would hand you a key and he'd go, here, take this, you'll need it. And it possibly wouldn't do anything. But if you ran into a portcullis, um, it's the only way to get past the portcullis, which would slam down behind you. So it, it was a key that might do something. And that's exactly what you get here. You get a dying um, prospecting survivor hands you a key that may work if you get to the portcullis gate location, which when then you go inside, you find. You remember the strange resource, Josh? No, I can't. The perfect malt something. I don't. Perfect crucible. The crucible. There we go. Yeah. And I believe that's when you activate that, you lose 1d5 population. 1d10. Oh, d10. Okay. So 1 to 10 people die when you uh, go to make this weapon. And then what else does this weapon need to be made besides just that? Nine iron and three organs. Okay. So a lot of iron. So what is this weapon? It's a three speed, which is kind of weird because I'll explain in a second. Six plus accuracy, 14 strength. Um, It's both a grand weapon and a sword and has finesse, which is weird because it's a giant two-handed weapon. Yeah, it's finesse. It's got slow. It's two-handed. It's finesse which yes. is kind of a weird combination there yeah it has slow so that three speed is really a one unless you're frenzied then it becomes a four because you have plus one speed token sharp devastating two which i think this is the only devastating two in the core game and it's irreplaceable which is the only bad thing about it and it gives you minus two movement and has a down red affinity yeah yeah it's um it's a really great weapon really really good just very hard to build at times yeah, the only thing I, f- I feel like it should have reached just for thematic reasons, because it's like an eight foot long sword. And in... does it not have enough for you yet? No, it's not that it doesn't have. Enough. I like just thematically. I feel like that's what it sh- it should have. <laughs> I know. So uh, do you want to do you want to tell people who those people who do not really know exactly what the reference is to? Do you want to give them a few details about Berserk and about what th- this actually references? So the, actually, I'm a really big fan of Berserk and. Berserk's probably the reason why I backed the first Kickstarter because I saw the theme and everything and how it was a lot of it came from Berserk and really got me tied into it. Um, so it's a 
it's a manga slash anime. It's been around since the early 90s, I think. And uh, it's about this guy as a swordsman, and he carries this giant sword. And the whole idea was he's a little kid, and he had a full-size sword when he was a kid. So he always had a sword as big as him. Um, and it just gets to the point where he just carries a giant slab of metal on his back. And uh, and that's what this is kind of mimicking. But uh, a lot of the demon styles is the same for Kingdom Death and Berserk. And uh, the plane of faces is actually very similar to a the Eclipse world of Berserk. Um, it has a very similar feel to it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, I came I, I came in the way round. I have read and caught up to date with Berserk. I skimmed through it uh, earlier this year um, to see how far you know the lot of links and influences, uh, which there is indeed a, a large amount of. And I did notice the Eclipse stuff. And yeah, of course, yeah, the Perfect Slayer and the Dragon Slayer, both kind of references to Guts's weapon. Um, Obviously, he wields it with considerably more skill than they do. And I imagine that's the reason the Perfect Slayer has three speed, despite it being slow, is to represent... I imagine uh, Guts would be a survivor with, um, was it Bitter bitter Death? Yeah, Bitter Death. Well, if you look at the uh, the little one-shot things with all the uh, promo characters, because there is a Guts character, the... Uh, what is it? So, um, messenger of Humanity. Yeah, Messenger of Humanity. He starts with the Perfect Slayer, and he has... Bitter Frenzy or whatever, it, uh, Bitter Death, so he can use Frenzy with all those fighting arts and everything. Pretty much yeah, it's to a destroy bit, everything. Yeah. yeah, it's the Bitter Death that um, gives you the Bitter Frenzy ability. I've had a look. I remembered incorrectly. It's the Oxidized Lantern Sword, which is the one that was referenced. So we'll close it out with a, the little sneak peek that we have been given into how these uh, weapons are going to be up, uh, updated and upgraded. So to be honest, like the Lantern Sword, as I said, is kind of terrible. Um, a three speed, five plus, three strength with sharp should be good, but it has early iron, meaning that it's very hard to hit with it. When it becomes oxidized, which mechanism exactly we don't know, but it involves the, um, you have to beat in the watch in order to be able to do it. Uh, the item, uh, again, it, it gains extra strength, um, to the point that it becomes three speed, five plus accuracy, five strength with sharp, which is great. And it loses early iron, which is amazing. So now it's genuinely a very good weapon. And it gains the ability to deflect, which is spend an activation. You now have exactly one deflect token. The next one time you're hit, ignore that hit and lose one deflect token, which is an alternate version of blocking, but not mechanically blocking. So... I'm excited to see what happens to the dagger and what happens to the lantern glaive and perhaps even the beacon shield and the scrap shield and all the bits and pieces to see where they go. It should be, um, it's, it's just a shame that the, uh, gold smoke knight's been pushed back or possibly going to get pushed back a little bit this to later this year than the summer. Of course, this isn't a bow. So, uh, why would you care, Matt? I mean, I care a little bit. And you gotta, you gotta start rocking spears. Go on. You should you should play a spear survivor next time around. You know what? Next campaign, I'm actually gonna do that. I I really like all of the benefits that you brought forth with that when we were discussing it before. So plus, it's always fun to change it up a little bit. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, the you might have some quite good fun though with the um with, with the Sunstalker bows, especially the easier to build one. It's it's actually quite interesting and unusual, and I do look forward to talking about it when we uh when we get there. But uh. Do we have anyone? Ha- Does anyone have anything more they'd like to say about the blacksmith location? Um, I mean, you know, it's. I think we've covered most stuff there. Um, it doesn't have any special abilities itself. The easiest way to build the blacksmith location is via rushing the weapon crafter to get scrap smelting to then get the blacksmith location. If I remember correctly, is that right? Yeah, that that would be the quickest way to do it. 
Yeah, uh, so you can get blacksmith a lot earlier than than others, and it's easier to get than the freaking barber surgeon, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, Josh, Matt, do you have anything further you'd like to say about uh, about this, about the lantern arm in general, or any of the gear? I mean, I think we touched on most of it. Um, we haven't made the lantern armor just because of the really heavy cost of it in our personal campaigns, and uh, mm. just we really spoke on how awesome the beacon shield is, and... It's something that if you're playing solely core game, especially you want to include in at least one of your builds. Um, otherwise, everything else is fairly situational. The Lantern Glaive is pretty cool, uh, especially if you have the uh, Dung Beetle Knight expansion. So you could add the Rainbow Wing Belt. Um, and the Whip's terrible because Whips are terrible in this so far. Um, just to note, we did actually make Lantern Armor in our personal campaign when we had the New Game Plus. Um, and that because we had so much extra resources that it was easy to do. It was like, oh, we already have a full weather set. Did we actually complete it, though? Yeah, we did complete it. It was it was on our tank build, and he was just stupid. Just, yeah, I don't care what you do. I remember making components of it. I didn't remember We didn't make a club for it. it. That was the thing. We wanted to make a club ah. for it to get the club specialization. I think we got the club to him, but he died before that or something like that. Or he was using the lantern halberd or something like that. Fantastic. Uh, so, Fen, is there anything else you wanted to add to it? Um, not really, um, except uh, I would say it's a bit easier to build Lantern Armor when you add the Dung Beetle Knight expansion in, um, which we'll talk about in more detail when we get to the expansions, which will probably be in a, a month or so when we start the expansions. Um, because the Dung Beetle Knight has a non-frail pickaxe, which is uh, it makes it easier to, to gather iron. That's for sure. Uh, so I think that means that this episode is coming to a close. Is there anything else you gentlemen wanted to add before we started wrapping up? Um, no, I said I'm uh, looking forward to discussing The Watcher, uh, because then we'll have finished discussing The Watcher, and then we can start the expansions, the first one of which will be the Gorm! I, I know you hate the Gorm expansion tremendously. It's such an incredibly awful and terrible piece of, of work that makes the core game so amazing that you know just you don't want to play with it no it's just too good at least the sarcasm be uh you know uninterpreted there it's one of all of our favorite expansions to the game just because of how much it adds to it but again we'll get there when we get there we will um, yeah anna did a phenomenal job in designing it other than that we thank you all for joining us uh please join us in two weeks for our next episode of great game hunters where we will be discussing the watcher the final boss of the core game and uh some strategies for how to deal with him because there's not a lot of other stuff going on with that and it's a pretty unique fight in and of itself although wholly unimpressive i'm not going to get too far into that uh but again we thank you all for joining us and just to plug all of our stuff going on right now we currently have the raffle going on uh fen do you want to say a little bit about the raffle because it is your baby after all yeah, well, if you um, you buy a, a ticket, then you get a chance to have a miniature painted by me up to uh, anything on a 50 mil base, sort of reasonable kind of size, say about the size of a dung beetle knight or, uh, you know, thereabouts. Um, and uh, you know, pretty much any lines, it doesn't have to be Kingdom Death. Um, I just don't really want to paint any sort of vehicles or any dreadnoughts or things like that. But, you know, as I think I said last podcast, I'd happily paint something organic like a Tyranid if that's what you wanted. Uh, but anyway, we'll sort the details out when, when we, whoever the winner is, you know, and good luck to you all. And just to point out, uh, all of the minis featured on the Twist Gaming Twitch Plays Kingdom Death stream uh, that are painted are done by Fen, and they are all 
absolutely phenomenal work. We really thank you for hooking us up with those just so we can ogle out of and drool all over Josh's KDM board. I'm sure he really appreciates that. Uh, but you can check yeah. out more of his work on his Instagram and DeviantArt page. Uh, what are those, Fen? Uh, well, my Instagram is Fen Saunig, F-E-N-Z-A-U-N-I-G. And my uh, DeviantArt, which is mostly older stuff, not Super Dungeon Explore, uh, is S-T-Y-F-E-N. Um, the links will be in the chat, and I imagine you can also access them, I imagine, with the podcast or um, via uh, the, our Discord. You can also get them, or any of the streams where um, people at Twist are kind enough to uh, promote my stuff and pop up the links there in the chat. This is very kind of you. And finally, I know you have your uh, Patreon account set up, so you guys can show support to him that way. And I know you've got some goodies that people get in return for their support as well. Yes, yeah, there's a number of different tiers there, including uh, discounts off commissions, or uh, if somebody ever wants to, uh, to to help me achieve the life I've always wanted, then they can have as many commissions as they want in a month, as that I can manage, I should say. But other than that, uh, we'd like you all to follow us on our Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and our Discord channel, uh, Twist Gaming, or some variant of that for all of those. Too many to list right now. And uh, please join us for our next broadcast of The Great Game Hunters. And if you all are interested, we might be wrapping up our Twitch Plays Kingdom Death campaign on Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, You guys can vote to fight the Watcher and maybe get a sneak peek before we delve into it on our Great Game Hunters podcast. Other than that, uh, thank you all for listening to live, downloading us, uh, enjoying our podcast, and we hope to have you all back again for our next one. This is Great Game Hunters and Twist Gaming signing off. I'm Matt. I'm Josh. And I am Finn. Good night, everyone. Take care and have a wonderful weekend. Bye. Au revoir.